0: Hi, my name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and I know it's been a while people, um a few months have gone past since I last managed to do an episode and this is going to be a 2013 review episode. I know we're kind of well into 2014 now, but I have been planning this for some time, and I did watch a lot of films last year, so I did want to go do a review show, and I like review shows, I know some people find them quite boring, but I thought it was only um, right that I should do my own. Um, The reason I've been away, I have been moving house, and quite frankly, um, it was a bit of a ball lake from beginning to end. I'm sure anyone um, who's gone through it knows. It's an. You, you, it's not only is it in a ball lake trying to find somewhere to live but it's also an extremely stressful process of actually managing to kind of get the deal through the door and I had numerous um, false starts and getting offers in on houses that would then be accepted and then rejected and it was a total nightmare and then of course when I did actually find somewhere uh, you have to move in and that did take a lot longer than I thought and just to kind of get myself settled really Um It's had a bit of a knock-on effect and I really didn't have the time to record I didn't really have the motivation to be honest with you now everything's calmed down and I'm in my new place Um, hopefully get back on a more kind of regular track Um, I do realise I've gone way off of the Criterion episodes what I'm actually going to do is I'm just going to carry on from where I left off on a spine number basis but kind of try and you know just spend a little bit more time talking about the film as well so I will be carrying on with the Criterion shows but they won't be sort of a monthly review they'll just be um the spine numbers from where i left off and hopefully you know, might catch up one day probably won't to be brutally honest with you but um there's some definitely some good films and there was a little box that i wanted to talk about as well in there so yeah we will um we will carry those on in due course the bond episodes will i'll be posting them up on the blog as well we'll get back to that so we're about to hit the dalton years so uh certainly enjoyed those films and um yeah um also yoakim's been recording away on the of cinema cast as well so we, there'll be some more of those going up so a lot more content will be hopefully hitting the feed very soon but without any further ado really i'm going to get into my 2013 review and i'm going to preface it by saying that my top 10 are in no particular order until the first, the number one film which was my favorite film the rest you know i don't really have kind of a 10th ninth eighth i don't really rank it like that i just lumped together my 10 my, my 10 favorite films and and not not necessarily, I think um, the ones I enjoyed the most, but ones which I thought if I was to kind of put a time capsule together of films from 2013 and uh, open it in a few years, I, that these would be the ones that I kind of remembered the most. But I actually thought, kind of, i on to kind of general point really, that um, 2013 I thought was a brilliant year for film. Um, I made a conscious effort to go to the cinema more times than I ever have done in my life actually, and Over the course of the year I saw 52 films that had a 2013 release date and that's quite important to stress because some of the films I'm going to be talking about came out in 2012 in America so I really will be quite behind, that's why you'll be hearing me talk about films like um, Django Unchained and Les Miserables and Zero Dark Thirty and things like that. So my criteria is it has to have had a 2013 release date in the United Kingdom so that does mean perhaps I might be sounding a little dated at times but I think I'm gonna begin by talking about the films that disappointed me most this year and it's a bit of a strange place to start I know but really um, my number one most hated film of the year and I'm always wary when I see reviews of films where they give um, one out of five Reviews. I think, yeah. You know, how can something be that bad? There must be something about it, surely, that you can kind of enjoy. And this film, I um, I was absolutely appalled by it, and it was unfortunately Nicholas Vine in reference only God forgives, and that surprises me even saying it because he is a director who, over the past few years, I've had Drive, my favourite film of a couple of years ago was uh, Valhalla Rising. I think it might have been four years ago now, actually. I can't remember, but. Um, pretty much every film he's released I've I've loved and along came only god forgives and I literally I don't think I've ever seen anything as dull as this film in a long time and you can say what you want it's you know style over substance I just think this film has absolutely nothing to it it is a I suppose you could say pretty film it, to me it just reminded me of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and how its visual presentation but I thought the story was ridiculous, uninteresting, unengaging. The characters oblique enough to be just completely unengaging whatsoever. And I just felt that, for everyone concerned, I, coming off the success of Drive, I, 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 I think some kind of sense of, you know, what can we possibly do wrong has kind of come over the filmmakers, and you know, um, Ryan Gosling in particular. And it's just... I was gobsmacked by how bad this film was and how much I hated it and of course I, I kept reading reviews like people giving it like five stars and things like that and I, I don't know what am I missing I, I, I don't get it I don't see the appeal the attraction of this film at all I think it is self indulgent to the point where it's it's almost like an in joke I think amongst the people who are making it I, I don't I, I've I've gone back to it since I've watched it twice now and and I've tried desperately to see what it is about Only God Forgives that other people seem to see. And I, 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 I don't get it. I don't understand at all what this film is trying to do, what it's trying to say, what it's trying to be. Um, I hope um, God does forgives because everyone concerned should be on their knees begging for our forgiveness for wasting an hour and a half of our life. So that was my number one biggest disappointment of the year my second biggest disappointment of the year was Danny Boyle's follow-up to 127 Hours, which made my top ten when that came out, and that was Trance, and this film was I think I might have a problem with James McAvoy I don't know, I, I, um, I I'm not sure if I really like him, I watched Welcome to the Punch the other day where he was doing this incredibly awful South London accent, and um I don't know if he's. I don't know if he can carry a film. He looks too small and too meek. He just doesn't seem to put it off me. And I found Trance to be, I guess, a little bit too pleased with itself. Almost like you know, it was trying to be a little bit too clever, and the kind of the sensual kind of premise of it. Um, I just didn't buy in the end. Actually, to be honest, I didn't believe this film um, necessarily. And um, you think it's going in one direction, and it kind of goes off and. From the sort of psychological thriller, and kind of veers off into this sort of melodrama, really. And, um, no, I, d- I didn't get trance at all. I-, I was, um, thoroughly underwhelmed with it, actually. And that really disappointed me because, um, I sort of feel like with, um, Danny Boyle, you know, he's, he obviously he's kind of like Danny Boyle, Christ Almighty, now after the, um, after the Olympics and the rather wonderful opening ceremony that he choreographed. But, um, yeah, not a huge fan of this film at all. I, I hope he kind of, um, Gets back to form with his next film. I know there was there were some TV series which I didn't actually see, but um, yeah, very disappointed with Trance. Um, now, when it came out, District Nine was a film that I was thinking, this is really kind of the birth of a new great director in Neil Blomkamp, and his follow-up, Elysium, um, looked great on the trailers. I thought this is definitely a science fiction, kind of post-apocalyptic type thing going on. I thought this was going to be a film I loved, and alack, I really didn't. I was pretty underwhelmed by *Elysium*. Um, at least not because I just don't think uh, Matt Damon really carries this film that well. I think he looks a little bit ridiculous in that kind of outfit he's wearing. But this film just felt like a computer game to me. It had exactly the same kind of like end-of-level baddie structure. Shia Copley kind of coming back and just being basically. Um, An evil version of the character he played in District Nine, and the the message was it obvious. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. You know, this is a a, a film about um, wealth and equality. And yeah, you know, I, I got into, I I, I can buy how this film looks. I enjoyed it on a kind of visceral level, I suppose, for the action. But i after about the first half hour, and it was banging your head over. With with this thing, it 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 kind of lost me a little bit. To be very honest with you, I wasn't very impressed with it, and. It's a shame. I, I hope sort of Neil Blomcat doesn't become too obsessed with this kind of tech world that is created. And I think he's going to do something completely different now. I think um, come back to perhaps science fiction in a while, and, and then see if he can do something a little bit more original. Because Elysium, as a, as a, as a good-looking science action, you know, science fiction action film, I suppose it's there, but um, this it didn't really hold me at all. um and the next film I need to talk about as well is one that by God, I, I, I don't know what happened here. I, I, I think my critical faculties abandoned me but um, when I first watched this film, and I, I'm going to sound like sacrilege here, um, I did quite enjoy it and that was Star Trek Into Darkness and I've gone back to it since and my God no, this film is, is, is it's awful and JJ Abrahams is not a great director. I think he is the Frankenstein that the kind of the George Lucas Steven Spielbergs created. You know he 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 mimics kind of George Lucas really and that is not a good person to mimic. I, I don't think George Lucas is a great film director and JJ Abrahams isn't. This film is just made for moronic teenagers. It never uh, it never stops. It's just constant action, 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 and the fact that he's doing the Star Wars films, I mean, let's be honest, that that new Star Wars film, it's going to absolutely sh- fucking be awful. Let's, let's not delude ourselves. We can hope, I suppose, but it's going to be awful. It's going to be made for the same people who watch this and think it's good, and I know people who absolutely go crazy over this film, and and these kind of Star Trek reboots. They're awful. They're absolutely pitiful. There's nothing in there which I think any, anybody, not even, you don't even have to be a Star Trek fan to realise these films are awful. And God knows what I was thinking when I enjoyed it the first time round. I think I was perhaps so convinced it was going to be crap that I, you know, that anything other than kind of just having two hours of, I don't know, people shitting on screen, you know. And yeah, I think because perhaps my expectations were so low, it kind of took me unawares. The yeah, only thing I would say actually, I saw the 3D Blu-ray and actually thought, thought, thought this film was shot in native 3D, and it wasn't actually. And I was quite surprised by that because the, for a 3D post conversion, goes I think this one looks, works really well. But overall, this is a bloody terrible film. I do like Benedict Cumberbatch, though. I think he's good at as everything. A, as a, but why, you know, if I want to watch Starship with Khan in it, I just go and watch Wrath of Khan. It's there. It's a better film, and I don't get that. And I suppose moving on to pointless—well, not pointless, but basically just remakes. Um, Man is still well everyone knows my thoughts on that I recorded an entire episode on it still hate that film um, not even Michael Shannon can save it as far as I'm concerned um, another huge disappointment was Alex Gibney's We Still Secrets about um, WikiLeaks um, in particular of course Julian Assange and I think probably the problem with this film is that uh, it's, how much is it about WikiLeaks how much is it about Assange well the problem about Julian Assange he's an absolute arsehole that's the problem with Julian Assange. He isn't a likable person at all. He's an up his own arse prick, um, and this sort of, you know, the government's after. My, you know, we don't know. You know, the, the, I wouldn't mind him going for prison just on the basis of such an arsehole, I do admire what WikiLeaks has done and I think it's very important. What, what disgraceful what's happened to Bradley Manning, and he's the real kind of star of this film. Or Chelsea Manning as or she wants to be known now, but. He's one of the most bravest people in the world. Currently, serving thirty-five years, which is just an obscene amount of time. But I didn't like this film really. Um, It sort of, after a while, I I lost interest in it. I was becoming, I thought, it was incredibly dull. And um, yeah, shame really, because I'm a massive fan of Alex Gibney. His his work is pretty flawless to me, and uh, it's it's not bad filmmaking. I think it's just a bad, bad story. I, I think it's. Slightly confused as to really what this film is actually about, and um, yeah, I won't be going back to it anytime soon. I have kind of a guilty pleasure, which is Judd Apatow films, and he returned this year with This Is 40, which is kind of loosely a remake type thing. And um, this is the one. This is his. To be honest, this was his weakest film I've seen. Um, it felt more like a series of sketches. Um, I can't even remember the name of the characters at the top. Man, I know they were knocked up, but. Yeah, didn't didn't warm to this at all. Uh, didn't find it very funny. And it was just it, it just felt a very long, laboured film to make kind of a point that you know people get old and relationships change, which you know no, no shit. You know we all know that happens. Um, Joseph Korinsky's uh, follow-up to the ever be- well the the constantly getting better Tron Legacy was Oblivion, and here's the thing I'm going to say now. Absolutely love how this film looks. I love M. 83 Three. I like Tom Cruise. I like the chick out of um, James Bond. What's her name? Olga Kurylenko and you know, Morgan Freeman. What What could possibly go wrong? The problem with Oblivion is, and it's quite simple. This film makes absolutely no sense on any logical level. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. When you try and apply logic to what is going on in this film, it it just goes out the window. And I mean, I have. I've tried to kind of get over the fact, you know, it's a film and, you know, I, I, I can't take it too seriously. But when you literally sat there thinking, what is the, you know, why, why are these things happening? Why does this happen? What's the, what does this actually mean? And I, I just sat there thinking to myself, you, you can't defend the fact that this film has absolutely zero logic to it. And, have racked my brain trying desperately to try and make it make sense and it, it doesn't and i can watch it on the basis it looks good and i love that sort yeah i love that last man on earth thing and you know tom tom cruise is great in it. and i'm having a good luck like, uh, yeah good fun with those visuals but on a basic screenplay level oblivion is absolutely awful and um yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that uh, people are going create... Well, not crazy about the film, but I'm amazed people like it as much as they do because um, I was certainly left completely and utterly um, baffled by it and baffled, not in a kind of head-scratchy sort of, or oh, what does this mean? Baffled in the fact that, you know, ha, what, what draft of the screenplay was this? I, I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, very disappointing. Interesting to see what it does next, though, because um, I do like how this guy, this film's guy's films look. Um... Olivier is Something in the Air was a film I was looking forward to as well and I sort of thought it was going to be, well uh, obviously quite autobiographical but um, this was, it was so dull this film, I was—I don't think I've ever kind of checked my watch so many times during the course of the screening and it's just sort of, you know, it takes place in kind of like 60s, 70s France and it's kind of film that sometimes you know, these, this kind of film that sometimes ends up in the Criterion Collection again, and it's this sort of coming-of-age type tales. But um, I thought this was incredibly boring. And another one as well, I was really looking for was *In the Fog*, which was a Russian film set during the war. And I wanted to be kind of taken to, um, you know, kind of familiar tread, familiar with kind of come and see. And by God, this was mind-numbingly boring. I mean, at two hours, I was climbing the walls. Um, it's the kind of the worst type of art housey film I think. It was just really, as, as, as well, the, the, the critical um, lauding of this film was quite large, and I, I was really thoroughly un, unimpressed with it. As I was as well with Blue Jasmine, um, Woody Allen's follow-up. How Kate Blanchett won an Oscar for that? I, I, that that's just beyond me. And um, I'm gonna kind of you know, is it unfashionable now to say you like Woody Allen films? Um, I'm perhaps not the kind of grab a pitchfork and burn anyone who's accused of being a paedophile. F- for the record, I personally don't think Woody Allen is a paedophile and, um, you know, I, I appreciate what has come out in the papers recently um, but I, I still think at the end of the day I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and that's not because I'm sort of blighted by his films, by how much I like his films, but it's just because I, I, I think that's a fair thing to do in his case and, um, you know, I went to Blue Yasmin, I, I completely kind of hoping this would be kind of, you know, one of the all-time Great Blue um, Woody Allen films, and it really wasn't. I didn't, I didn't take much out of it at all, if I'm being completely honest. Um, there were a few... One film, as well, I thought I, I just couldn't briefly talk about, which I was pretty convinced that I was going to absolutely hate um, on the trailers because they were really trying to make this out to be the film that you were supposed to love, and that was um, Pacific Rim. And I, st- I, I didn't go watch it at the cinema, I picked it up on Blu-ray. And yeah, I had a great time with this film. I think it's, I think it's brilliant fun. And, um, I know, um, Guillermo del Toro seems to be someone who, uh, a lot of people hate him, and hate him personally, and uh, apparently kind of comes across as a bit of a uh, self-loving prick, and I've, I've, I've never actually seen that, to be honest with you. I don't have actively uh, seeked it out, but, um, you know, I, I enjoy Pacific Rim, and I like Idris Elba as well, so, um, and it was just thoroughly good fun. I mean, how, you know, monsters attacking kind of... Uh, I can't remember what the bloody geek term um, is for them, but... Monsters. And, um, yeah, I had, a, I had a thoroughly good time with Pacific Rim. It's a shame he didn't do any better, but hey-ho. Um, there was a few ones as well. Below that, um, Ron Howard's Rush, uh, the tale of Formula One drivers James Hunt and Nicky Lauda during the 1976 Formula One season. I really enjoyed that. Um I think it was uh, a perfectly kind of acceptable, good, fun film. I don't think it was kind of a prestige film. It was just, uh, I, you know, I had a thoroughly good time of it. Chris Hemsworth, I do enjoy him. I, you know, Thor, I think he's brilliant in that, actually. And, uh, yeah, I, it, I, Rush was a, a pretty decent way of spending a couple of hours, I thought. Um, Alan Partridge returned, well, made his big screen debut um, in... Alan Partridge's Alpha Papa, hilarious, easily the funniest film I've seen. I love Alan Partridge anyway, and that was um, a real surprise, actually, because I thought sometimes these kind of film crossovers are normally pretty awful, but that was uh, extremely good fun. Um, Stephen Soderbergh's Behind the Candelara, again, really, really surprised me. Um, Good to see Michael Douglas back on screen as well, I think, and uh, he's obviously had kind of some health issues, and this was a brilliant performance, and Matt Damon... um, as well, I thought was excellent in it. Uh, very funny, um, a, cra- a kind of a crazy film about a very very eccentric person. But um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty. That's one of these ones. Probably you know, twenty twelve or if you lived in America, really enjoyed that. But the worst experience I've ever had in a cinema with two guys who were talking behind me, and um, I uh, yeah. I thoroughly lost my temper with them and absolutely bellowed at them in the cinema to shut up and uh, it was a fairly unpleasant experience. Putting on the basis of well that they're talking the most of when they're attacking the compound, which I think that at- compound attack in Zero Dark Thirty was probably my favourite sort of, I don't know, scene of the year, I guess, or sequence. Um, utterly incredible filmmaking and um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if enjoy was the right word about Zero to out of 30, but it was certainly in a, um, an extremely good trip to the cinema. Um, Upstream Colour, that was another one. I, I've seen it once. We'll go back to it again. Um, I think, like, kind of Primer, I like Shane Shankara films, you, you know, th- these aren't films that wait for you. They certainly go at their own pace, and I'll have to go back to that, I think, and uh, watch it again. But I know I enjoyed it. I don't think I got it at, um first time round, and I think any kind of film that promotes uh, repeat... Well, when you want to watch it again, because... Not because... To make it remember if you like it, but to kind of take it all in, I think that's a good sign. Um, A real surprise as well was... um, Steven Soderbergh's side effects, which... This was one of the best thrillers I've seen in a long time, and a great Jude Law performance in a really kind of, like, nasty film, I suppose. It it wasn't a very pleasant... uh, uh, tale, and um, just so effective, and really well, just great filmmaking all around really, and um, I was so impressed with it, and it's if, if Sodenberg really is going to be retiring I think it's a shame, because he could kind of knock these types of films out, it reminded me of something um, kind of like a 70s thriller, it, it felt like a really kind of old school film, and uh, I, I, go and check it out, because um, if you haven't, it kind of came and went here, but if you haven't kind of it perhaps been put off by it um, definitely to seek that out because I, I was thoroughly thoroughly impressed that does bring me on actually to what possibly my favourite superhero film of the year which was the Wolverine film um, I enjoyed this because it, although it did sort of hint at the other X-Men films it was, really did feel like a, a true kind of Wolverine on a mission type film and um, yeah I thoroughly enjoyed it I didn't see Thor I um, didn't see Iron Man 3 in fact no I did see Iron Man 3 in the end which I kind of enjoyed a little bit but no, overall I, 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 I thought Wolverine was uh, the standout superhero film of the year for me. I um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but, yeah, there were a few others I could talk about, but I'm, I'm not going to kind of go through every single film that I saw They're Probably the, the most, I suppose, the the, m- the more um, noteworthy ones. But what I will do before I get into my top ten, I'm going to do a quick round of the ten that didn't make out. And they were um, they, they were in their top ten, I suppose, and then kind of got booted out by other films. Um, Django Unchained, um, already talked about that, uh, well, I haven't actually talked about it, but I mentioned it, of, of course. Um, it's probably my favourite um, Tarantino film so far. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it had just the right mix of kind of humour, horror, violence and, uh, you know, something to think about as well. Um, Beware of Mr. Baker, a brilliant documentary about the cream drummer, um, Ginger Baker. If you like kind of your rockumentaries like I do, check this one out. Um, absolutely hilarious and shocking in equal measure. Um, In the house. um, This was a a French film um, directed by Francis Ozon and starring Kristen Scott Thomas. Kind of a a Rushmore-type film, um, but a lot more fucked up. And uh, yeah, um, definitely check that one out because you will not, you simply will not see where that film goes, and it'll keep kind of uh, guessing from beginning to end. Uh, The Gatekeepers was a fantastic documentary about. Israeli secret services, not Mossad, but um, the internal security services, and uh, one of the most um, kind of—I don't I think "shocking" is the right word—but it was. A, it's a very produced documentary. And used lots of kind of um, computer animation and that kind of thing. And um, it's not—it's not the film you think it's going to be about. Um you'd be quite surprised by the people who are in it they kind of the heads of this form of, of internal security because they aren't their kind of outlook on the kind of the whole kind of problems with israel aren't as um aren't what you think actually and uh a lot of food for thought and it's an incredibly entertaining film as well um really kind of exciting um and it, you know it, it it doesn't it does have quite a kind of a bleak ending anyway it doesn't it doesn't kind of offer um Kind of a particularly rosy outlook for the Middle East, and um, what Richard did. then this really was really, one of the first films I saw last year. It's an Irish film um, about um, a lad called Richard, funnily enough. But um, yeah, this was this was going to be this was right up until kind of I was really kind of sorting my top ten out. Really, um, this I, I, I was going to include this, and it, it narrowly avoided it. But um, it's a film about kind of an Irish kind of. Upper middle class lad who does one thing, the well, what he does basically, and um, the kind of impact that has on his life. Really, really amazing film, um, directed by Lenny Abrahamson. We're really looking forward to what he does next, and um, it's on Netflix at the moment in Britain. So if you do, if if you fancy something a little bit different, next up was No as well, which was a Chilean film about, um, starring, starring Gal Garcia, garcia pronounce it i can't remember his name but this is a great little film um kind of reminded me of a version of Mad Men, really in which um after kind of general pinochet is going to give free elections um there's there was two campaigns yes to keep him in power and no to go for democracy and um this film is about the advertising campaign behind the no uh, part, uh camp and uh, really interesting um way it's filmed as well it film all kind of like vhs kind of cameras so it has this kind of like uh, very retro stylistic look, but thoroughly enjoyable. Very funny, um, very shocking at the same time. Um, Laurie, which was Kate Shortland's um, film about a girl during at the end of the war, her parents are arrested as being Nazis, and she tries to get her brothers and sisters across Germany to safety. This was again another. I thought this was going to be in my top ten, and after I watched it, I was completely blown away by it. But it narrowly avoided um kind of reminded me of a terence malick film i did see to the wonder as well this year which um was one of those which kind of I, I loved it when i first saw it to the wonder and i've gone back to it on blu-ray since and i've not been quite so keen and it didn't make my top 10 All this kind of nearly top 10 but no laurie was well worth checking that's on netflix as well beyond the hills was a romanian film about um a rather sad case of a girl who died at a convent. Um, Probably had quite complex health needs, and um, the sisters at the convent didn't help her, um, but even she was actually being possessed. And that was um, a, not, not a barrel of laughs, but one of the um, the more sobering films I saw. World War Z as well. Um, this was really the biggest surprise of the year for me because th- I absolutely love this film. Mark Forster, This it's just a wall to wall. Truly global action film, and I got slagged off there for this big time on Facebook. Some stupid fucking idiot made a comment. You, I, I, I was making the point, that, you know, I, I find a lot of blockbusters incredibly boring. I think it was Man of, Man of Steel, where it's just you know, America saves the world, and films like kind of Pacific Rim and World War II truly have a global feel, they have a, a much massive, much bigger, more higher stakes. Feel to them than films that are just set in American cities, where, well, well, end up being set in American cities. And I got shot down in flames for it because obviously, you know, it was oh yeah, but it's American money that makes films. And a few moronic comments. Yes, yeah, that's why I, mean. I don't. I seldom bother posting on such groups. But no, World War Z. Uh, this was a massive surprise for me. I I love this film. It is absolutely superb, and I hope it gets a sequel. Um, I don't care if it's not particularly um, faithful to the book. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and. This film could have easily been my number one of the year, um, and I, I've only not put it in my top ten because I, I'm, I think I'm going to save it for another day and do something special about it, but that was The Hunger Games Catch and fire. I, you know, people think I'm taking the piss. This is the best film franchise currently going. Um, these films are incredible. They are so much more deeper than I think than a lot of people give them credit for. And France Lawrence, I think, absolutely nails it. I, think he's a, I, I really enjoy his work anyway. Um, as a director, and um, I can't think of a film he's made that I haven't enjoyed actually so far. And uh, he, he, people said this film's too long. I don't agree with that at all. I, you know, I, I was completely transfixed by it. Actually, I think would be the words. News. I'm so annoyed I didn't see it in IMAX as well because I would have loved to have seen those arena scenes. But um, no, I, I was blown away by this film. It's hands down the the, the best at present the, the best Hollywood franchise in existence of the Hunger Games and um, no I'm, I'm not taking the piss either I generally believe that I think they're um, as good as Hollywood films can get and I cannot wait for uh, Mockingjay so sad obviously about Philip Seymour Hoffman although I do understand his parts have been um, completed so uh, yeah definitely going to come back to these in a while and uh, do something a little bit more substantial on them because they are incredible so that's it for before i move on to the top 10 and like i said before my top 10 are in no particular order until film number one so do let me do let me know anyway what you think of some of my selections and let me know yours as well i know it's later on in 2014 but what the hell it's always nice to get some um good recommendations for my love film queue so here we go then with my top 10
1: Øh, hey, yeah, det oh, yeah, so mm-hmm. er mig. Hej, Jeg har også dig. Er den lille prinsesse, der vil så gerne lige have en? Hej,
0: bare. godt, kom hjem til kæresten. Det kunne Der bliver en fort på 12 millioner megatons.
1: Lars Vestergaard, venter på derinde. Vestergaard. The pirates are now on board.
0: Confirm. They are
1: now on board. Over. It's my ship. It's my crew. It's my job. To bring back
0: my man. If you make one mistake on the end of that phones, these people could be hurt or even killed because of you. I are If we just give them the first demanded figure, they're just going to turn and say, Well, thank you very much. This was a deposit. I'm calling to tell you that they want
1: $15 million. I'm not going to talk about the money with
0: you and I'm going to hang up, okay? No, don't hang up, sir. <laughs> You know who's keeping you here? Your fucking boss is keeping you here. I'm not keeping you here. If you would've paid the money, we would've went home a long time ago. Baby, listen. You call the company.
1: Tell them to pay, or they're gonna kill us. (laughs) Alright? No! No! No!
0: If you're emotionally involved you thinking thinking was your heart and not with your head and that's where mistakes happen please
1: give me hope now or is it going to kill me don't you just sit my don't fuck with me um
0: paul greengrass's captain phillips was one of the temple. Prestige releases by a studio in 2013 and it had critical and award season acclaim written all over it. Now I'm a big fan of Greengrass. I don't necessarily dislike this handheld approach he has that is so divisive for some, and I particularly like the performance he gets from his lead actors. Indeed, the urgency he brings to films made him, I think, the kind of the perfect match for a film like Captain Phillips, which is a high-stakes, rapidly moving narrative devoid of any other kind of distractions other than the central story that's being told. Yet, for me, and I I went into Captain Phillips, um, really kind of looking forward to it, the reviews were brilliant, I noticed, even the Guardian gave it a glowing review, and I I went into it expecting, um, I suppose, to be kind of quite moved by it, and I actually found Captain Phillips to be um, a very oddly unemotional film. I didn't really care about Tom Hanks as Captain Phillips, and I think perhaps my opinion was clouded by the less than complimentary stories about the Phillips in the real world and for all its kind of gloss and undeniable technical prowess I thought Captain Phillips was one of the films where the critics and I seem to kind of disagree on a great deal uh, I think one of the biggest problems as well was I couldn't ever get over the fact of seeing Tom Hanks as a character I just saw literally Tom Hanks on the screen and it's very hard to kind of get involved in the film when you have that kind of disconnection and I don't think, by any means, it was a bad film. Um, indeed, at sometimes it was breathtaking. I certainly think it's worth seeing on the big screen. The, the, the ship was kind of, you know, free inspiring. However, I simply couldn't make the emotional investment that I think it needed for it to kind of truly resonate. And it, this might happen in later viewings. I don't know. But for the time being, at least, I was pretty much quite happy just to leave Captain Phillips alone for a while. I might catch it when it comes on cable or something. But. I think part of the reasons why I didn't get so into Captain Phillips was because I'd seen a very similar film of sorts uh, early on in the year. Now there was another Somali pirate film that came out and I, in 2013 and I can virtually guarantee that it wasn't playing anywhere near your local multiplex. And director Thomas Lindholm first came to my attention with a quite brilliant film The Hunt mm-hmm. which is a deeply moving um, drama starring Mads Mickelson as a teacher accused of molesting a child and Linholm's follow-up film, A Hijacking, was the other Somali hijack film released in 2013 and it only played for one week in Manchester and I'm so glad that I managed to catch it because I pretty much love this film. I haven't seen it again on Blu-ray. Was I still think it holds up as a quite excellent film and it's a film that's divided into two very di- different narrative strands. Um, the first part we, first, we meet Mikael, who's the cook of a small container vessel and he has a wife and child at home and along with his kind of crewmates appear to enjoy their job and camaraderie. We also get to know Peter who plays by, played excellently by Soren Mallin, the CEO of the shipping company that owns McCurl's boat. And Peter is a pretty tough businessman negotiating million dollar deals on a daily basis. And then along come the pirates and seize the ship and demand a ransom. And not to be outdone, Peter is going to handle the matter personally. He promises the families to get the crew home safely, and crucially, he is not going to pay a penny more than what he believes is a fair price for the ship. With the help of security officer Connor, the company executives decamp into an office and talk to the pirates, and it soon becomes quite clear that Peter may have bitten off a little more than he can chew. Meanwhile, on board the ship, the rest of the crew must live with increasingly nervous pirates and the consequences of their paymaster's refusal to give in to their captors' demands. Now, hijacking was described in some circles, especially by the film critic Mark Commode as a verite film. And I couldn't disagree with this more. Chronicle of a Summer is a verite film. And I think to call a hijacking a verite film would kind of almost dilute the term. And I think it's very much a a conventional film in the truest sense, although one very different from what you might be expecting of a hijacking-type genre film. Most of the action is confined to small claustrophobic rooms, both on board the boat and the company offices. We don't get vast sweeping shots of ships alone in the ocean or Peter standing on a cliff contemplating his actions. It's far more interesting the actual mechanics of how Peter is going to get the company out of the mess and how Mikkel and the rest of the crew are going to cope with the increasingly desperate situation. Now, in the case of Captain Phillips, the intervention was largely in part because the story was causing a great deal of bad press for President Obama. Navy SEALs were parachuted in to rescue Phillips, and in reality it was, I suppose, made for a kind of a, a high-budget, Hollywood action film and in reality though pirate hijackings are a far more dull affairs they normally negotiate through a myriad of middlemen and lawyers and in most cases after months of negotiations a ransom is paid parachute to the pirates and the crew is released hijacking takes you through the somewhat mundane process the pirates first huge demand the company's low counter offer the first con- contact with the pirates and Peter could almost, is almost a, kind of a blink blinking you're missing moment it's literally hello how you doing thanks bye and indeed, afterwards, there there even kind of smiles after this. Perhaps it's going to be a little bit easier than everyone thinks. We get introduced to Omar, who is the pirate's chief negotiator too, and he doesn't want to be there either. At least of all, he does not want to be called a pirate, as we repeatedly see. But on first appearance, at least, Obama seems like a pretty um, Sorry, uh, uh, Omar seems like a pretty decent guy, and you could be forgiven for thinking things are very very simple, and this is going to kind of be quite a smooth transaction, and. At first, it seems Peter doesn't really care about the crew, uh, he only wants to kind of save money, but when confronted by the crew's families, he seems a little detached, at least kind of at this stage, emotionally unattached as well. And I think this is why a hijacking is a cut above other films of its ilk, because this is a waiting game, and Peter and Omar are two sides of the same coin, and Linholm is not going to bother with searing scores and fake emotional beats. If Peter agrees immediately to the pirate's demands, they will only ask for more. The ship isn't worth what they are asking for anyway and Peter realises in order to protect the crew he must disengage himself from the human aspect of the drama and instead channel all his efforts into helping them the best way he can which is to be the businessman that he is and that is a very ruthless one at that. Now I was reminded of Sidney Lumet's 12 angry men during the office-based negotiations. This is no situation room with huge plasma screens showing real-time updates of the ship and nonsense calculations spitting information. There are no hotlines to the president and... Unnecessarily darkened situation rooms. And a quick aside here, my eyes fucking roll when I see that kind of stuff now. You know what I'm talking about, it's all the crappy static rolling down the screen and tiny writing. Yeah, what does any of this actually mean? And you know, what's it there for? It's just so stupid and daft, it kind of really does my head in now. But instead, in this office, we have kind of whiteboards with post it notes and cool log and a satellite phone straight to the pirates. It's the same kind of nondescript meeting room we have all sat in. The dialogue is formal, not bombastic. And almost immediately, this film completely grips me. And a quick word here to Gary Porter, who plays Connor Julian, the specialist assigned to help Peter through the the process, because Porter is actual head of security for a maritime firm, and his performance is so lifelike. It's almost as if he's not acting. And it's such a simple, effective performance. It's one of my favourite of the year, actually, for its sheer simplicity. And while everyone will be Wanking over the you know, kind of the the Oscars, and I'm actually recording this on on the day the Oscars is taking place, so I don't know who's going to win. Like, but you know, people like Porter um, make it look so easy, and it's a shame that they kind of don't get the kind of the, the recognition they deserve. But on board the ship, the contrast is achingly clear. The pirates are truly foreign. They speak fast and wave their guns around, and. Although Omar shows flashes of niceties, in reality there is a business to be done and he, if he thinks pointing a gun at someone's head will hasten negotiations, he has no qualms about doing it. And the relationship on board the ship between the captors and the captives often appears jo- jo- jovial in those sea shanties and drinks are had, they even do some fishing together, yet this relationship and the dynamic between them can change in the blink of an eye, which it often does. And the pirates and the crew are from two very different worlds and in Captain Phillips there was uh, kind of references kind of an economic situation Um, kind of almost like geopolitical factors involved in the piracy. Um, I I guess we could call it context as such and a hijacking doesn't offer this Um, and when the pirates speak there are no subtitles and we like the crew have no idea what they're talking about and i rather wonder if the film was filmed like this you know if the director just said you know let the scene play out I don't know I, I would suspect it does because some of the especially the reactions they get from some of the crew. I don't think you can script that type of thing. And when the kind of pirates are shouting and screaming, the the fear that comes off the crew, I think actually permeates from the screen. I I was genuinely worried for these people in a way which I wasn't when I was watching Captain Phillips. And hijacking pulls off that rare feet, but you never really know what is going to happen next and one minute they're having a joke and then the next they're having a gun pointed at their heads with mock executions and Linholm does an incredible job of juggling the tonal shifts in the film on one element you want the pirates and the crew to bond as if somehow if it's safer it'd be easier to watch and you know as if the ordeal would be more palatable instead the film gives you the nuggets of possible mutual understanding and then takes this away in the next scene and it is incredibly effective in how drawn into it you get and these pirates aren't not doing what they're doing for any kind of grand political idea, they're doing it for money, and it's a very lucrative trade at that, and piracy is a complex business, and mechanics are a laid startlingly bare. And I actually like the film for not trying to kind of go into the pirates' backstory or kind of understand what they were doing. Um, it's obvious, you know, they're crooks and they're up to no good, that's, what, that's, that's who they are, that's what they do. And what's more, I think it's okay not to kind of like these people, sympathise with them. You know, obviously yeah, there aren't a load of cut kind of navy seals waiting off the horizon to kind of bump them off. But you know, these these people—they're degenerates. You know, you, we don't we don't need to to know anything more about them really. And yeah, you Peter know, Peter's coached through the process. He is clearly far out of his comfort zone. At one stage, he's told by Julian that time is a Western concept, and it's such a true, resonating thing to say because the people we're dealing with clearly they don't give a shit how long it takes it takes a week or 12 months or even longer they do, they're they just there to get the money and go and I do have slight quibbles with the film and one of them was a kind of rather awkward point when it reaches about the hour and 10 minutes because seemingly in the bleak of eye Peter is bellowing at his overly supportive wife for no reason and on the ship Mikhail is going further down a hole of despair and it all seems slightly out of place and for a film so nuanced I rather felt that it was trying to be a little bit too dramatic to kind of hurry on the film to get it to the the end and it, it, it's kind of a brief film. it's only about um, one hour forty minutes but I just felt that kind of last half hour it was just slightly rushing things and I you know, I perhaps it could have been a little bit longer I don't know but I, it was certainly I felt that moment where I was a bit kind of like it just seemed to kind of slightly lose touch of itself and you managed to kind of claw it back but for me, A Hijacking is one of the most effective thrillers that I've personally seen in years and by stripping the film down and giving it its kind of brisk running pace and aside from my kind of minor quibbles, it, it easily breathes past it. it was a, it's a very melancholic film and it doesn't try to do anything grandiose. It just tells a story of human beings trying to resolve a very difficult and awful situation. And I think then the director kind of steps out the way of the film. He doesn't over-direct it. Indeed, much of it takes place in mid-shots, which isn't to say it's visually bland, Where I think he's just letting the actors get on um, with what they do best, which is to just go with the film. And I I get the impression that the actors here, there must have been such a gift, though, everyone involved in it, because you generally do get the sense that perhaps they were given scenarios to go through and just kind of act and react to what was going on. But personally, I think... it's a film which I can see myself going back to and learning a lot from as well. I, I felt like it, for such a high-stakes film, to kind of give it such a simplistic concept, it was very refreshing in a way to see a film of this kind. And I think Captain Phillips will be the one that kind of lives long in the annuals of cinema, but I, I, I hijacking, I wager, will be one that, it's one of those little gems of a film that will constantly get rediscovered, and for me anyway, at least, was the best Somali pirate film of 2013.
1: When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Dad, can you just go back over
0: that
1: one line? I was being so real. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Well, I guess if you could start by describing Mom in as much detail as possible. Me? Do you want me? Oh, I'm sorry. Here is a church, and here is a steeple. She was the most fun I could think of as a child. She was very warm. She was, you know, full of life. I did sense that she was a woman of secrets. She yearned for more. I never once left in
0: between, I was on the fence. I remember all of a sudden my mum not being around, and I can remember adults crying.
1: I guess they kind of blocked it. What good is it going to do? You know, the family was a big enough mess.
0: Mum must have thought, what did I
1: do wrong that led to
0: this? I told her I would never discuss it with anyone, and I never did. I think it's our family, and every family has a story.
1: Nobody ever talked about it. What do you remember me saying? My God, all this stuff we've been joking about for years, it's actually true.
0: I think she maybe realized what her life could be. I think she made a choice to live.
1: This is a great story. This is a great, great story. From misbehaving, I'm in the red. Hardly surprising, I'll never be wed. Instead, I'm misbehaving, saving my revenue. What would you say this documentary is really about? Um, Is this a good angle for me? (laughs) (laughs) I missed that
0: line. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so next up was a film that completely took me by surprise. for, For many, many reasons. And was possibly the most... I suppose emotional film that I saw all year and it was Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell which delves into her own family past and on the surface this might look like something of a vanity project but in reality it's one of the most interesting deconstructions of films and personal relationships I've ever actually seen now Polly began to suspect that the man she thought who raised her as a father wasn't actually her father indeed and the film looks at the relationship between her mother and her father how the pair met and in how time their love faded and they drifted apart and it becomes apparent that polly's mother wasn't faithful to her husband and the, the, the reasons uh kind of there to see really she i think was kind of like quite a free spirit he was perhaps not quite the man that she thought she was marrying is a little bit more reserved than she thought they met on stage in a play and it kind of appears that she kind of fed in love with the actor and the roles he was playing, as opposed to the man himself. And Polly begins to go back through her mother's past acquaintances and look for the person who she thinks is actually her father. Now, this doesn't sound particularly riveting, but somehow stories we tell is both utterly compelling and life-affirming at the same time. Now... Where it succeeds is it takes a relatively simple story and one I don't think which is altogether unfamiliar to a great deal many of families and why I enjoyed it so much was because for me at least the moral of the story of which you can kind of come to your own conclusions isn't revelatory or overly dramatic instead it's more of a celebration of the fundamental issues that permeate us all and part of why I love the kind of film's kind of playful nature, as it were, is because in to 12, you're not actually quite sure who's actually telling the truth at any given moment. And about two thirds of the way in, Polly kind of pulls the rug from underneath you, forcing you to rethink everything that you've actually seen before. Now, I won't elaborate what this moment is, but sure enough, when it occurred, it was with such little fanfare, I almost felt like it hadn't actually happened. And in turn, the film, how I was actually viewing it completely changed. It was as if the actual kind of genre was somehow changing too before my eyes. Now, the film is a documentary. It's also a scripted story in one sense and something altogether different as well. And I love the fact that it plays around with kind of genre. And because I think we're so used to seeing kind of generic conventions that when this kind of is shaken up a bit, it's it's quite kind of exhilarating in many respects. And Polly uses her father to narrate from a script written by her. So the words are not even his, although they're presented that way. And yeah, we, we can see her correcting him telling him to say lines again and he's also one of the subjects of the film interviewed for his own recollection of events and it's a strange dynamic in a documentary to have this because you think about how we you know we always trust the narrator don't we in, implicitly and in this case we we're not really quite sure what to make of it, because it's clearly not him speaking, although it is actually him speaking, it's certainly not his words. So does he mean them, or is it Polly talking to us? And I I don't know, is it something in between? Again, it kind of goes back to this idea that this film is kind of constantly kind of mucking around with these little things that we take for granted. And in many cases well, some of her family who she's interviewing, they actually kind of stop mid-interview and say, well, you're the one who kind of told us this. And again it's very very simple because these are kind of like almost mistakes really in an ordinary film but in here they actually kind of go completely to the part of what the film is actually about and in a way it kind of remind me of Orson Welles' F for Fake and that's a documentary about a Forger that in and of itself may actually be kind of fabricated as well and I can't really kind of spend too much time talking about it because I think it's one of those films which you really have to see for yourself and kind of even like I am, I'm pretty certain you, you. most people will watch this and absolutely fall in love with it, but to kind of go on too much I think would be to I, I guess kind of take away some of the enjoyment you might get out of it, but all I can say really is from my perspective that it was one of the most surprising and outright heartwarming films that I saw, yeah. and it, it really kind of genuinely surprised me, and it was an, an original and deeply moving film and I, I've seen it now a couple of times, and it really does hold up on repeat viewing as well, despite the fact that you kind of you know where certain things are going to come but it, it, it doesn't seem to kind of take away from the kind of the enjoyment that you get out of just watching a really well crafted and I think it, it's it's a word that often gets banded around a little bit too much but I generally think this film's a masterpiece Um, just in its construction and how well it works and certainly um, out of all the films I talk about this year I think if I could demand in fact or kind of Plead with you to watch just one of them. Make sure you check out stories we tell.
1: I dreamed a dream in time gone by, when hope was high, life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die, I dreamed that God would be forgiving, but the tigers come at night, with their voices soft as thunder.
0: Okay, now I'm not going to lie. Um, I don't have a particular fondness for musicals, which isn't to say that I don't like them. I just don't watch many of them. And my favorite, perhaps of all time, is Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And just for the record, of course, it, it couldn't be anything other than some kind of art house affair as opposed to a Hollywood film. But it, you know, the musical, I think, is, and it well, I suppose, in its heyday in the '50s and the '60s not an era of cinema that I really go back to that much, and I kind of when I watch films like *Singing in the Rain*, I, I do think they're they're fun, but I also think they're a little bit kind of daft. And I, I can't remember if I've said it before, but they kind of remind me a little bit of kind of action films, which is that they have kind of moments of fairly inane dialogue with perf, well, in you know beautifully choreographed moments, something like a John Woo film, perhaps. Certainly not on any, any of his um, Hollywood outings, but. Yeah, saying that West Side Story um, is a a great film. I picked that up recently on Blu-ray and and really enjoyed it. I absolutely detest Grease, and I I want to kind of burn my head off when I see it and anything, any any time, any music from that comes on at a wedding or something like that. I want to absolutely kill anyone. The CIA always seem to attack Afghan weddings, and perhaps they should try and turn their attentions to weddings that play the Grease mega mix at some stage during the evening. I certainly would be able to um, stomach that a lot more than I would a group of Afghani's kind of jumping around a dead sheep. Now, I, but I, I sometimes feel as this kind of like um, I suppose film appreciation faker. Sometimes that I, I, I should like musicals a lot more than I do, and I think the apparent golden age of musical is over however I would kind of ch- challenge anyone really to come up with more than kind of 10 musicals that they can honestly say that they watch with some rapidity and uh, I, which kind of may suggest that this kind of golden age of the musical might be a little bit more illusionary than perhaps we like to admit and to say that they've kind of you know they fade away I, I don't think that's true at all musical musicals always been been with us they, they've never kind of there's never been massive gaps between them and you know, if you can dig a little deeper you can always find them in, in recent years I suppose past 15 years I guess Moulin Rouge was a particular favourite of mine I think the, the brilliance of Bas Luhrmann's kind of crazy genius mind kind of cross with kind of pop songs and a frankly bonkers set that I made for even my kind of fun loving hating ways kind of completely enjoy it oh I still think Ewan McGregor's voice is ever so slightly awful but kind of strangely acceptable at the same time now 2013 saw one musical in particular come to the big screen after years of being a money-generating behemoth in London's West End and Broadway, and of course, I'm talking about Rab. Now, Tom Hooper is a director who I think has a near kind of perfect filmography to date. I I absolutely hated *The King's Speech*, then I actually decided to watch it and thoroughly loved it. And I don't think Hooper's actually done anything wrong in his entire kind of film career so far. And After the King's speech, I guess he would have had the kind of the world at his voice to do what he wanted. And it might seem that, um, I guess, making a film adaptation of one of the most popular musicals of all time isn't a particularly kind of risque kind of direction for him to go in. But let's let's be honest, audiences today are mostly quite stupid, and would they really kind of accept two and a half hours of non-stop singing? And there's not a there's not a spoken word in *Les Misérables*. Every word is sung, and you know, as the title suggests, "Lemons Are Up" is hardly a barrel of fun, and I had the pleasure of seeing this film on IMAX. And recent viewings of the format have kind of left me a little bit, kind of, um, you know, so-so as so much of how I enjoyed it. But this was an audio visual treat from beginning to heart to end, and it's it, it, it's kind of not hard. It's, it's hard to think of really the musical. You can't think it's a kind of bright, glossy kind of Rogers and Hammerstein affair, and. Layman's Rab could not be further from this kind of idea. And from the film's truly jaw-dropping beginning, this pulled me in, into what I thought was an absolute triumph of set design and direction. Now, I think we kind of have to talk about one thing first, let's be honest, I mean, because he likes to kind of smash phones into people's head and threaten those who don't let him make crappy expectant speeches, uh, Russell Crowe uh, is a kind of guy that we've kind of hated and kind of never really loved either. and I won't deny I, I, I enjoy almost every film that he's in, and you know when he's being serious because he kind of puts on that kind of English accent or speaks a little bit like someone playing a Roman BBC kind of seventies costume drama. I think the kind of the worst film I've recently seen was kind of I guess with him with Robin Hood, and that'll be uh, destroyed in the next Ridley Scott roundup. And don't, you know, I still haven't finished those ones yet. But um, he did really, you know, at the height of his powers, release really some god-awful music as well, with his twatty mates, and committed the worst crime, I think, when it comes to singing, which is thinking that he could sing well when he can't actually do that, and this kind of ties in, really, to, I think, one of the reasons why Les Miserables worked for me, because this kind of a dirty, awful tale of human suffering I think it'd be completely out of place if the cast could sing. And Russell Crowe came into a lot of a lot of criticism in this film for his singing voice. And I actually think it's perfect for his character. And I don't you know, if he was hitting kind of notes with kind of the laser precision of Mariah Carey, this it simply wouldn't work. And I think Hoop was very clever in what he actually did and he had the the actors sing and recorded those those takes on set and you know without the kind of the the polish of Putting it into a studio and having you know take after take after take, I think it's there and it captures a very raw, immediate reaction from the actors. And oddly enough, it made for an absolutely appalling soundtrack album. This sound, if you listen to the CD, it is god awful. But when you watch it, kind of as a film, it, it seems to work. And you know. We have to talk about Anne Hathaway um, and her rendition of A Dream a Dream because it was really the moment, you know, that four minutes, whatever it was, it, you know, it, basically she walked off the Oscar of that, and it's kind of deservedly so. I, I've rarely ever seen an actor give such a heartfelt and utterly soul-crushingly beautiful moment of genius in all my life, and you actually felt every line of hurt and every emotional scar that character had been through, and it was one of those rare, utterly perfect moments in film that will quite rightly be lauded for many years to come. And Hugh Jackman too seemed to kinda of channel that hurt and pain he film I must have felt of missing out on James Bond into an equally tragic performance. And again come come this film's kind of final five minutes, I really felt uh so sorry for this actor and for this person, you know, not not the actor, I didn't anyway, I wasn't thinking that's Hugh Jackman, I was thinking just about the character. Almost the complete opposite of how I felt watching um, Captain Phillips and I, I think my I think the real star of this film for me was Hooper himself though and no one quite does space like Tom Hooper and of course I'm not talking kind of space out there that we float in you know, actual space on film he often frame shots in a way where his subjects are completely dwarfed by their surroundings and Vichy this film kind of reminded me of something like Terry Gilliam's Brazil and thanks to some fine set design and art direction it also reminded me of the stage roots of this piece as well and I think Hooper is one, one of the most exciting directors currently working at the moment and Les Miserables is perhaps his finest achievement to date as well and on IMAX it was simply a breathtaking spectacle never mind the fact for four tickets I think I spent close to £70 which is kind of ridiculous really but I, I didn't come away feeling I had been shortchanged in the slightest and I, I think this this version will be the definitive version for for some time to come i can't i can't think of anyone trying to kind of redo this again for at least another fifty years and I don't think this film is going to bring about a kind of flurry of new musicals and I don't think it's going to suddenly change the way in which people approach the genre, but it did remind me that perhaps it's time to go back and explore the kind of the musical genre a little more and kind of stop pretending I know a little bit more about it than I actually do.
1: bos cuma dan j- 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 lama kali nenek nah, nah, saya nah, 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 nah. born free hey, as free action as free as <tik> A- be- itu divisi di kejahatan perang born itu buatan orang yang pemenang saya pemenang Are. <laughs> yang saya harapkan tadi tidak sampai begitu kali. Nggak bisa diulangi. Oh, no. Tolong! Beratap, beratap! 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 Banyak, ya. Rupiah, manusia yang perasaan begini. Apa dosa, Mas saya.
0: Okay, so the next film was one that was so shocking, so inhumanly awful, that it was almost impossible to watch it sometimes. And it was exactly the type of film that people should see the day it comes out, as opposed to something like Iron Man 3. And the film I'm talking about is The Act of Killing. Now, during the 1960s, Indonesian Death Squad murdered over a million so-called communists in a Western-backed political killing spree. That is one of the nasty little stories that we pretend didn't really happen and certainly never address or directly mention. The truth of the matter, it it was a genocide committed by gangs of thugs, indiscriminately killing anyone suspected of being a subversive. Men, women and children were slaughtered, some because they were communists, others just for the fun of it. Now, this film doesn't ask who the victims were necessarily, Moreover, it explores who the people who were doing the killing were, and in this case, a group of ugly, obese gangsters who, if there was any justice, would currently be serving prison sentences, hopefully for life. Now, instead they are free to roam, earning money extorting local Chinese shopkeepers, and they are also national heroes, and they even appear on TV chat shows laughing and joking. Directors Joshua Oppenheimer and Christine Sin ask the men to reenact their crimes in any way they see fit. And where Congo, the lead I suppose you could call him in the film, personally killed over 1,000 people, usually by strangling them with wire. So for the better of the camera we see the guys in drag pretending to murder, dressed as gangsters pretending to murder. And we even have a musical and some scenes which look like they're kind of straight out of Apocalypse now. And it sounds utterly horrendous, it's because it is, and why in the act of killing is one of the most absorbing films to come out in recent years. During the course of the running time, we do see flashes that what the men have done might have had a profound negative impact on their lives. And while some of them see nothing wrong with what they have done, their heinous crimes are often lauded still to this day, an example of how to use power to exert control, the political and ideological motivations for actions are completely inconsequential. I doubt they even know the difference between what political leaning they were fighting for in the first place. The historian Niall Ferguson recently summarised that the reason World War I dragged on so long was because people started to enjoy the killing. There was a kind of a sadistic quality to it, and I, I sort of I think that's there's a lot to be said for that. We like to kind of think of it kind of this, yeah, I suppose, the heroic bloodshed. I guess, but simply put, I think humans can be pretty despicable when they kind of when they when they're allowed to kind of roam free and do as they please. And certainly, this is what I saw in the act of killing. And we like to kind of label these people as kind of monsters, as if somehow they're incapable of functioning in normal society. and... What is so chilling in is, is how comparatively normal they all seem. They are good friends to their friends, devoted fathers and husbands, and all they are essentially gangsters are quite proud of what they seem to have done and virtually kind of free of guilt of bad feeling. And as the film progresses, as in the variety of outlandish ways they create their evil deeds, chinks begin to show, and some are ultra-defensive about what they have done, and others complain of having sleepless nights or... And it's when they're forced to play their victims in one scene that this seems to have a profound impact on Anwar in particular. The mental trauma begins to tell, and the f- as the film draws to an end, Anwar returns to a particular haunt where the memories become almost too much. Buckled over and retching. Anwar is a broken man. And it's a fitting end to the film, in a way, because by rights I think this person should be serving life in The Hague, but it, in a way I felt that there was some sense that the kind of the internal trauma that he had kind of wreaked upon himself was somehow actually having an effect and in a way I don't think it atones for what he has done and in reality I don't think they could, you know you kind of get the impression for the most but they're not really that bothered anyway but in some respects I wanted there to be a more kind of hopeful conclusion to it and you know, can in reality the men you know being forced of them to kind of be rounded up and you know, extradited to stand trial. Instead they, they seem to have gotten away with their unimaginable acts of evil and it's a very genuinely uncomfortable film to to watch. And it's the little things really, like the kind of the flippant way of how these men discuss how their victims died and you know, how some of them pleaded and begged for their lives and in some cases it took hours to die and it's that kind of horror I think that kind of resonates through the ages and although the kind of the wider issues surrounding the murders, you know, we don't really kind of go into the kind of the history of, of what actually happened in Indonesia, yeah, this was really was kind of like the front line of the Cold War, as it were. You know, this was, you know, to, to to the outsiders at least, this was you know especially kind of the Western powers. This was seen as kind of a part of the kind of the global war and stopping the evil of communism from stopping. And in, in reality, it was simply wholesale murder by committed by a bunch of psychopaths with little or no interest in the cause for which they're actually fighting. And I don't think the act of killing really kind of rationalizes the slaughter, and it you know it didn't need to either. It doesn't suggest anything other than horrendous human suffering came from it. And I think it's as bleak a film as you can ever see, really. To me, it played out as a kind of sick reality game show, and the nature of kind of what makes a celebrity was even more twisted in this case. You know, we're often you know we're often asked how someone like Kim Kardashian can be famous. You know, what has she actually done? And 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 his and his friends that they're celebrities for genocide, and knowing. The kind of the West's collusion in this outrage—I think it makes it even more horrific. And in our kind of celebrity-obsessed culture, this is a kind of moral Frankenstein that we can create. And it's a truly sickening, damning incitement of every facet of cultural foreign policy and human nature there can be. But all that being said, this was a compelling film to watch. I didn't watch the extended cut of the film, and I certainly will go back to it. Um, uh, Probably, I I need to get some distance, I think, from it before I can kind of go back and kind of see it again. But certainly, this was one of the most I guess traumatic films that I've ever seen in all my life.
1: Where's home, Dr. Stone? Lake Zurich, Illinois. Is there somebody down there looking up, thinking about you? I had a daughter. A little girl with brown hair. Tell her that I'm not quitting.
0: Okay, so this year's Christopher Nolan Award for the most fantastic yet hugely overrated film goes to Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. Now, I had a feeling that Gravity was going to be the kind of overhyped and overpraised film of the year when the word of mouth was coming out saying it was... Uh, this generation's 2001, A Space Odyssey. And that's such a ridiculous statement, I I thought, straight from the off, because there's no way you could make another film like 2001. And from what I saw from the trailers, this wasn't even attempting to be like 2001. And it's comparisons like that that really, they kind of put me off on the wrong foot, really. And I could tell that the kind of the over-exaggerated, loving of this film was going to annoy me and in a way it kind of clouded my going into gravity because i suppose the kind of the hipster kind of twat in me didn't really kind of want to like it because i didn't want to seem like everybody else but i went along to watch it of course and gravity was a spectacular i think almost jaw-dropping at times space adventure film and it's here really I have to kind of get into the nuts and bolts because Gravity is uh, a brilliant film and I actually caught this on IMAX 3D and I can honestly say thus far in this kind of re-invention um, I guess of 3D or the fact that it's been, being so rammed down our throats that I can honestly say this is the only film I've seen in 3D where the, the experience of seeing it in that format is integral I thought to the overall experience of the film. And I can actually honestly say, with no exaggeration, on IMAX 3D, I, this is the only film I've seen where I actually felt some degree of kind of motion sickness. And that has a lot to do with kind of the way Curon aspect, I think, goes into the film. Certainly in the, those opening few moments where the, the kind of camera's just floating around, and I actually had a visceral reaction to this, an actual physical reaction. I had sweaty palms, I think my heart rate was actually noticeably going up and it was a film which I felt like I was genuinely experiencing something that I had never actually seen before and I I, I can't stress enough how I'm saying, I I really kind of say this is really true as as a technical achievement. I have never seen anything quite like gravity. You experienced anything quite like gravity at the, at the cinema before, and I—I I suppose I kind of underarmed armed about about whether or not I was going—I was going to put it in my top ten because I, I actually do think I preferred The Hunger Games, which I've kind of left out because um, yeah, you know, it was up there last year, and I, I wanted to kind of kind of give my ten kind of favourite films and kind of like you know offer something a little bit more varied. And I know a lot of people will be kind of kind of talking about Gravity, but I one of the reasons why I wanted to include it because in a way I want to kind of dispel a lot of these kind of myths that have come about Gravity is not a deep and meaningful film like a lot of people seem to make it out to be and I think really the credit has to go to The current Brothers for the screenplay which is simplicity itself and you know you can talk about the fact that you know Sandra Bullock has this kind of daughter who's died and she's going through this kind of rebirth it's, it's not even hinted at, it's not kind of, you know, you don't have to kind of scrape away the layers to kind of get this meaning. It's there, it's so blatantly obvious that that is what they're doing. And you know, there's some of the imagery, you know, when she's kind of fetal in the kind of, the uh, the space station and she's kind of reborn again. It's so obvious and yeah, you know, they're not even trying to be subtle about it at all. I, I've read so many kind of reviews of this film and seen so many people kind of posting on Facebook and whatnot. That it's this kind of deeper, meaningful, profound experience. No, it isn't. Gravity is a wall-to-wall action film. It is the same type of film that I, I think I've, I've seen before in terms of Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. And it has a very simple story and a few very, very effective screenwriting techniques. That first one being this hour and a half rotation that we have where the debris is coming back around the Earth. It's so simple, and it's brilliant, and it adds. It, you've got this kind of literally ticking clock scenario going on. And you know, it doesn't kind of need to kind of unfold in real time. You know, obviously kind of hours are passing or between the kind of the scenes where... And, and, and you know what's coming, and the characters know what's coming, and when you start to see in the kind of the silence those kind of bits of debris coming past it's absolutely fantastic stuff. And this leads me to my other kind of issue with, with some of the reaction to it. People claiming that this film isn't realistic, I mean, for Christ's sake, it's not trying to be realistic. Of course the International Space Station and the Hubble Space Telescope aren't, you know, like 100 miles apart. We know that, you know, they're in different orbits and they're 1,000 miles apart. But that's not the point, you know. It's, it's meant to be kind of setting up these scenarios and these kind of, almost like a kind of a computer game type kind of narrative structure where, there's a quest and then a kind of end of level baddie which in this case is some kind of disaster and i mean everything that can possibly go wrong goes wrong in this film you know, from fires on the space station to you know pods not working it's all in there and it's you know, to to say to, to criticize it and say that it, it you know it, it's so much because it's not you know realistic i mean i saw someone give it like two out of five saying this would never happen because the scenario of which it shows when all these um satellites start crashing together because we're all at different orbits blah blah fuck off you know what I mean just take your hat off and look at it it's just a, a an expertly crafted and executed action adventure film that's what gravity is and for people to sort of say that it kind of it offers this deep, profound experience about the humans. I'm sorry, you're reading too much into it. I, I, I mean, I went into this film expecting that from these kind of 2001 comparisons, and it, 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 it didn't give me that. Mercifully, it gave me something which was you know, a lot more simple. It just becomes a very effective film and. I think it kind of rehashes many of the best kind of parts of kind of action science. Vegetable. You know, you can't look at Sandra Bullock in this film when she's kind of stripping off to kind of like you know, vest and knickers, and, and not think of Ripley and Alien, and you know it's got all these kind of inherent tensions built into it. Kind of you know de- depleted oxygen supplies, engines not working, you know Apollo thirteen even, which is obviously based on a true story. It's that kind of a film, and. I think we have to really, I mean this is the day after the Oscars and Curon has obviously won Best Director and um, I, I like to sniff at the Oscars and sort of, you know, kind of pretend that then you know, they're not very good and I'm above it and all that kind of thing. But really I didn't see any other film this year that was a, a technical tour de force as as this is. It is a stunning film, quite frankly, an achievement in film making and it's the little things, it's the pan into Sandra Bullock's helmet and the kind of the pan out, and we've seen this before if you certainly in children and men and I know a few people, I mean I've gone back to that film relatively recently and I, I think it's a modern classic actually, and he's a director who seems to kind of, he, he kind of does what James Cameron does I suppose, but without all the kind of the bombast and the kind of the uh, I suppose the kind of the publicity just seems to kind of go away and kind of make come up with these ideas and make this you know make make these things happen because by all accounts you know, they're having to invent technology and you know Sandra Bullock was kind of kind of strapped up in a kind of gurney type thing and uncomfortable as hell for hours on end you know just to kind of slaving away to get this film and the results speak for itself I mean like I said I I think the kind of the CGI in this it's a film that could only be made in the CGI age it's a film that could only be made in the modern age of cinema. You couldn't have done this 10 years ago. You couldn't have done it 20 years ago. It could only be made now. And in that respect, it's a very modern film, I think. And it kind of shows what you can do with all the technology that is available to filmmakers. And that, that's what I love about it. I, I watch this film, and I think it's an incredibly inspiring film. they kind of the sheer hurdles that they must have overcome in order to execute it. But you, that being said as well, They don't neglect the fact that they've got kind of Sandra Bullock, who who, she's a fantastic actress. Sandra Bullock. I don't like a lot of her films, but you know she's not she's no slouch, is she? She, You know she she can act, and in this, again, people saying this is like an Oscar worthy. No, it isn't an Oscar worthy performance. I don't think Kate Blanchett was in Blue Jasmine either, but this isn't a really kind of deep and meaningful performance. You know, she's just kind of it's the fact that it's a lot more subdued than what we normally expect from Sandra Bullock, and it's it's you know it's a serious film. It's you know, obviously, kind of Clooney's there to kind of give some light relief, but yeah, it's very much her film, and uh, you know, she, she, she's perfect in it. I thought she really kind of, you know, gripped me. Wanted her to survive, and it's, it's a strange thing. You know, I, I talked about it when I was talking about Captain Phillips. You know, I couldn't get over the fact that um, I, was, I was seeing Tom Hanks. I, I didn't have that with Sandra Bullock. I felt that this was a very she, she felt like a real person in a very kind of horrible situation, and you know, it's an against the old story and. It's a stunningly simple film told in one of the most technologically impressive ways I have ever seen. And as much as I didn't want to include it in my top ten, I've got to be honest with myself and say Gravity was an absolute triumph for me in that respect. And is it a modern classic? I don't know. I I, I don't think so. I don't think it's one of the all-time great films ever made. But um I certainly think it's a pretty brilliant way to spend an hour and a half and quite great, great it's good on them as well, for keeping that runtime nice and short, keep the story tight, keep the action focused. And the results there for you, this is a real it's kind of fun. I can see myself just chucking on and kind of kicking back and enjoying for an hour and twenty minutes many, many times over. So and now having just as well watched the Blu-ray. Um yeah, this is the kind of the demo quality that you want for your 3D television. So Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, a brilliant, brilliant, fantastic film, but my god, people, this is not the second coming of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Is it just
1: you and your dad here? Yeah. You? you live here all year round? Yeah.
0: I bet the winter's of so cold.
1: surviving you yeah, i'm still here is he there no you're my first do you see, my and she, No, she left when i was four my dad built this place for her. you want to go for a drive i can't just leave whenever i like why not You love me? She'll move your arms. You're laughing <here, haven't> <coughs> Just let me hold you. Please. Where have you been? Who? Oh. Did you go anywhere else? No. I need you to stay.
0: So, much was made of the demise of Hollywood in 2013 and mega-flops that people didn't watch but somehow think they can have an opinion on, such as The Lone Ranger. And it's a boring, almost moronic debate that really serves no interest to me whatsoever, and the constant placing of Hollywood at the centre of the film world simply grows more tiresome by the year. However, I do think it's worth taking a little time out to discuss uh, one particular film industry, and that one being the British film industry, which in 2013... Um, I, I cannot really recall in living memory a worse year for British films. I think it is it is a worthy kind of discussion to have. And there was only a handful of British films that came out that I even had an iota of an interest. And I was genuinely surprised by how little anyone seemed to actually care that there was such a drought. Now I know, rather bizarrely, Gravity has been sort of labelled as a British film. Um, I, I, I'd love to know the sort of the, the, the reasoning behind that. Um... You know, it was directed by Alfonso Cuaron, It starred two American actors. I, I don't really see where the Britishness comes from. You know, it might have been made here, obviously. But, um, yeah, I, I think to say that Gravity is a British film um, is somewhat clutching at straws. And I don't think it's been helped, really, by the fact that the distinct lack of British films that were getting kind of wider distribution. My local art house was bereft of any, uh, most weeks. And you really had to kind of dig deep to find any. And... It, it was one which, this didn't play on cinema, I didn't catch it, in mean, it's release, so I only caught up with it on Blu-ray, and one that did end up in my radar was Scottish-born writer-director Scott Graham's Shell. Now, the film is set in the Highlands of Scotland where a young girl, the titular Shell, played by Chloe Purry, lives with her father, Joseph Morley, running a petrol station in Garage, and with mother long dead, the pair eke out a meagre existence surrounded by stunning scenery, with the occasional visit from passing cars, Some of the punters are regular some outsiders and shell's life is completely cut off from morality with her father he's the only man in her life and and she has feelings for him which can only be described as confused at best now it's worth mentioning that shell is a hard film to enjoy in the traditional sense it is relentlessly bleak unforgiving and devoid of any kind of humor really i have a phrase for these types of films and in an invented genre which i call misery tourism Uh, Paddy Constantine's Tyrannosaur was a film made in a similar vein, and for the record, I hated every single second of it. It felt more like shock treatment for the sake of being shocking. And films don't necessarily have to offer anything more, but I felt Tyrannosaur was so embroiled in its own misery, it really kind of didn't transcend into anything else more worthwhile. Now, for its relentless bleakness and crushing depression, Shell worked for me on the basis of the exceptional performance of Chloe Perea as the lead role, and she is a character trapped by an environment that offers nothing for a young person and her world is limited and therefore stunted in terms of her personal development the fleeting encounters she does have offer a glimpse of a world that might and could be yet all of them in themselves are deeply problematic and unhealthy now shells knows that her life is heading nowhere it is one incredibly and in one incredibly touching scene, someone moronically asks her if her name is Shell, like the petrol station. Her retort is perfect, correcting the person in the room, informing it is Shell, like the beautiful thing you find in the sea. Now, set in the Scottish Highlands, director of photography, Lucina Gartig, could not really ask for a better location to, to photograph. And there is almost a startling duality to the landscape and story. You can pause any of the many shots and simply gawp in wonder, but perhaps that might even be the point of all this in the first place, the seductiveness of the landscape it's easy on the eye, could blight the fact that this is a stifling place for those who live in it. There is absolutely nothing as far as the eye can see and I do rather think this is the point of the film that Graham is making a statement about the need for humans to be together it's kind of a form of social Darwinism in the same way many kind of animal species dwarf it on small locations such as islands humans form and exhibit stunted social behaviour when cut off from each other now Shell's ending does offer hope of sorts yet it's an action brought on by despair and unlike so many lesser films this doesn't patronise into thinking everything is going to work out just fine for the character the scars of Shell's life run deep, and perhaps they might be too great to overcome. Regardless, I think this is a fine debut from Graham, and I certainly hope that his career is allowed to flourish on these shores, and that he doesn't find a need to kind of depart and go abroad and make films. And you know, I, I think kind of um, it, it's worth talking about these kind of directors because people like kind of like Shane Meadows are so happy to stay in Britain and make films about British people. And they work. They, you know, he's, he, there's a, yeah, I suppose there's a couple of these films which I haven't enjoyed as much, but it, 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 I, I think it's getting very important now. Um, that kind of, especially in the age we're living in in Britain, with the kind of the, the economic problems that we're having and the, the level of cuts and things like that to kind of social services, and the arts always suffer. You know, Margaret Thatcher, you know, was no fan of the British film industry, and I, I think this government as well um, sees it as as art rather than potentially potential commerce and the effect I think is being felt very deeply you know a lot of people are um, departing these shores and going abroad and it's a very sad thing they're being involved in kind of the the filmmaking scene here it's very hard to get money anymore you know a lot of it is kind of being raised from kind of people's own pockets and in a way it's good I suppose because it's a lot more creative freedom but also it's kind of getting those channels and getting things out there and as I said Shell didn't play in many places in Britain Uh, you know it certainly didn't play in Manchester and this is like the what i mean lots of people say Manchester's the second city of britain i think in terms of size it's the third but that's that's that, that's a worrying i think that for all the screens that there are in this city and the fact that you know it is such a big place and prides itself on its cultural heritage that you know this film couldn't find a theatrical screening on one screen in manchester it's, it's shocking really and um you know I, I i'm glad i saw it on blu-ray the picture quality is absolutely stunning and if you fancy something a bit different, I think Shell is well worth checking out.
1: I love photography. I love being in my dark room. But even my dark room is a haunted place. Now, you came from a very, fairly rough background, didn't you, in, in, in London? Well, yes, it was, because where I lived, you were expected to, to take on anybody. You'd never back down from an argument. I walked into the Observer office one day and the editor said to me, how would you consider going to cover the civil war for us in Cyprus? This was my baptism of of war. I was learning about the price of humanity and its sufferings. You have a moral sense of purpose and duty. You want to take this picture and you want to stop it. In the end, I became totally mad, free, running around like a tormented animal. I've got to make sure that when they look at my pictures, if it's on a Sunday morning after breakfast, that it's going to hit them hard. There were many battles within my own mind before I got to these major conflicts. If he did his part, he wasn't going to be interfered with or rejected. No, you're totally... They're never going to be allowed to take the kind of photographs I did in Vietnam. The whole rule book has been rewritten. Photography is the truth if it's being handled by a truthful person.
0: If you haven't heard of the photographer Don McCullin, you will no doubt know some of his images. Possibly his most iconic is the shell-shot US Marine in the city of Wager in the Vietnam War staring into space. And McCullin is, and probably has been, the foremost photojournalist in British history, certainly during my lifetime. And it seems kind of long overdue that he should be given the kind of biopic treatment. And directors Jackie and David Morris have, I think, done the subject proud in the film simply titled McCullen. Now, he spent his 50 year career really in the worst places, seeing the dark side of human behavior. It's perhaps easy to think of photojournalists, especially kind of war photographers, as kind of mercenaries in a way, making a living of other people's suffering. And I think in this excellent and thought provoking film, this myth is very much blown apart and McCullin is an intimate portrait of a man shaped by what he has seen, and I don't think this is necessarily a reverential film. I don't think it kind of worships McCullin. I think instead it kind of takes a very much a kind of backseat and just that the man and his images do all the talking, which is sometimes I think the best way of making a documentary. I do often find that some documentary filmmakers try and get in there with the subjects a little bit too much. and What I think actually happens is that the film captures the inherent humanity in McCullin, which in turn helps to understand why he spent so much time doing what he does. And over the course of the film, it's the smaller moments that ring out the loudest, and it's not hard to really feel deeply sorry for someone who has to listen to classical music at full blast to, in his words, shut out the horrendous memories and images that are stored in his mind. And his time in these war zones has clearly left him a very bruised and battered individual. And although he never kind of breaks down on camera, you rather may well suspect he's kind of beyond this in a way. He's kind of moved on to kind of a different level of grief, I suppose. And he, he I think that's another thing about McCunn. He comes across. He, this is a very tough man. This is someone who was raised on the kind of the streets of London, and you know he literally kind of has fought his way through life. I mean, he, he makes no bones about it. He um you know he, he's, he's dished out a bit of punishment to people in his time and spent a lot of time really r- growing up with kind of gangs in London who he would really make make a name for himself photographing in those early years but when you kind of hear him describing his time in places like the Lebanon where religious fanatics were kind of murdering and killing at random it's almost being in a hospital where opening rooms full of starving children and a young boy playing with pieces of shrapnel. it you can understand perhaps why he kind of has kind of reached a kind of point in his life where uh, you know crying for that type of thing you know it, it 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 offers no good really and i think what he's done is he's captured these moments so they will be there for all time and you know the kind of the awfulness of these situations and these wars will be there for generations to see now i think there's another story which is being told here and it's also the demise of journalism really and especially kind of photojournalism of course because McCullin's kind of dispatches for the times and he, he, you know a lot of his, his work used to kind of be in the kind of the sunday times magazine and it was a stuff of legend really and into this we kind of enter rupert murdoch who bought the times and changed the direction from hard-hitting journalism to kind of more accessible stuff for the masses and people, especially in the early 80s, they didn't really want to read about the horrors of conflict in this kind of stead fashion and tittle-tattle took over, and the effects are all too apparent. You know, The last Gulf War played out like kind of an action film complete with daring hostage rescues, grand acts of heroism culminated in statues being toss, toppled, and you know, the president playing a role in Top Gun, and it was the most sanitised war ever shown. The, me- the media were handled expertly, and the war was portrayed in exactly the way it wanted the powers that be wanted it to we didn't we kind of it took years really for the kind of the truth and the horror of that conflict to start coming out now and this is how really I, the kind of the powers that be like to serve misery to the masses you know simplified you know despite all the killing wars were shown as a kind of a jaunty outing i you know I remember um on you know, I think it was i t v you know Within five minutes of, of the war, we were getting a piece about the kind of the the army sniffer dogs, and you, know, it seems so kind of trivial given the fact that there were so many kind of awful things going on a few miles away. But I think when the film triumphs is the fact that McCann, so much of it is news um, of his archival footage, and you know obviously the images that he was being shot by himself. And one of my biggest bugbears, especially when it comes to kind of news footage and stock footage, is that it's not news from the time it purports to be. The History Channel documentary is the worst for this. They often show the same pieces over and over again, or you know, especially when it comes to kind of war documentaries, scenes which aren't from what they're talking about, and it really annoys me. And in this, lots of the historical footage that is used, you can tell it's it's genuine, it's, it's from the time, and it gives the film, I think, a real kind of air of authority, which certainly lacks from a lot of these types of documentaries. And when they're kind of these kind of images are ju- juxtaposed with McCullen's photographs, it, you, you feel like you're kind of taking a journey back into time and looking at all these kind of war zones and historical moments and it's strange because I felt a kind of pity for McCullen and clearly there was something about this kind of world which made him go back time after time and the kind of perhaps he became addicted to the revulsion that he was seeing and the film does I think there's a part where he's in Vietnam and there's an actual interview with him and he looks completely lost, he looks like that marine, he's photographed Uh, staring into space and he even says it himself he was so close to to kind of going insane himself and you know this his life cost him you know marriages and relationships with his children and i think his work is absolutely essential for people to see it's a valuable record you know just how awful a species we can be and there are not many people like mccullen out there and you know we're all photographers now you know especially you know you know, in the age of digital SLRs, you know, we can go out and kind of take, you know, quickly press, you know, press the button and take as many digital images as we can. I think kind of what McCund is, he kind of goes back to an age where, you know, you had film and every picture he took had to, had to matter. And of course, it's a, a little bit bit being about the right place at the right time, but it's also being able to, in all that kind of horror, spot a moment of human understanding and feel empathy for the subjects that you're photographing. And if you look at his pictures, he, he captures moments in time which I don't think many other photographers would, would even know to get. And at the end of the film, when we see him kind of taking pictures of the British countryside, it's hard not to feel a sense of shame that this is a man, he should really be given greater honours, you know, he should be knighted in my opinion. And I think this film is certainly a fitting tribute and was for me one of the best documentaries of the year. Okay, through a heavily filtered lens stands a young girl in a field with dogs running around her we wait for the dogs to attack they don't the girl is trying to herd some horses as she shouts for her mother is it a dream what does it mean and where are this girl's parents and welcome to the experience that is post tenebrae luxe now it is easily the most divisive of films i have included on my years list and it was one that i was torn whether or not to include because i'm not sure if it's Crazy Genius or Total Drivel. After its premiere at Cannes, the notoriously pretentious audience began to boo and jeer director Carlos Regalda's work. It's the kind of response that made me hate that festival without actually ever attending it. Although for the record, he did win the year's Best Director Award, so at least someone there must have actually liked it. My colleague on the Master of Cinema cast, Joachim Thiessen, simply stated, "Fuck posting Luxe," which perhaps suggests Joachim was not a fan, which really begs the question: Well, why do I like it so much anyway? Now, it's not an easy film; it is maddeningly obscure at times, and regardless, decisions to film much of the film or at least apply uh, effects afterwards through a kind of a strange kind of prism effect the lens does get a little bit galling. That being said, I must have watched posting Brailux on exactly the right day, because I was mesmerised from, from beginning to end. The framing story is quite simple, Simple. one played by Adolfo Jiménez Castro is a rich businessman who gives up his city's life and moves his family to the country, then they live a completely different life. They are never quite sure what they have made a decision and what they were hoping to achieve from it. One is a sex addict, and in a series of flashbacks, we see him and wife Natalia Acevedo as Natalie taking part in a variety of different sex acts and clubs. One is totally unpredictable. At one stage, he, in a fit of anger, kicks his favourite dogs, injuring her badly, and then asks for help to control his anger. A growing sense of dread permeates this film, not helped by the appearance of a glowing red devil that walks through the house with what looks like a toolkit. You're never quite sure where dream and reality end, or indeed if there is any distinction. This is a baffling, often funny, frankly terrifying film that doesn't seem to be particularly interested in spoon feeding you a coherent narrative. And it is of course quite frustrating. We are so used to having clear cut narrative, cohesive narrative arcs, and perhaps there's even an argument to be made for them being essential to film. However, Post-Nibre Luxe eschews normal modes of filmmaking. Yes, it could be argued that this film is one gigantic, incoherent mess, that is so frustratingly obscure as to be awful, but at least it strives to be something different. It's also an incredibly beautiful film, filmed in a 4.3 ratio. Director of Photography, Alexa Ziba, compositions often resemble more expressionistic paintings. You're encouraged to look at the images and see the world differently. And it's very loosely based on Raider's own life and like any kind of timely recognition often the facts and the small details become blurred a half recalled moment in time is often the victim of manipulation to correspond with how we f- how we live our life now my mother for example doesn't like to admit our family is not particularly close yet she talks as if our childhood is filled with fun-packed family adventures I, on the other hand, don't recall any of these moments she often talks about, and I've often thought, is this because I don't feel close to my family or my mother is trying to deny that we're not actually that close and trying to kind of retrospectively invent a happy childhood, well, no, sorry to say, I did not have an unhappy childhood, but I certainly seem to don't recall all these kind of great family moments that she does, and I, I, I dare say somewhere the truth lies in between, and that's the kind of type of feeling I got from watching post in Ebre Lux. It's there's no real spoiler to say that the film ends with a boys rugby match in England and and the director picked up playing rugby when he was at school in England and I, I, I wondered really what this was and perhaps it was kind of a, a memory from one, one of one's memory recording a moment from his childhood is it you know, metaphorical or is it simply meaningless given the fact it, it's in the film I can take for granted it has to mean something and if it is actually just in there kind of flippantly what does that make the rest of the film? And I guess that's what kind of where I suppose some people are going to hate it and some people are going to love it. I thought as an experience, the film was a triumph. It was frankly unlike anything I'd seen for quite a while. And whilst I was watching it, I was kind of I was quite happy to kind of go along with it and not be so interested in the kind of you know, what the film was or wasn't and. At two hours, I have to say, this film absolutely sped past. I didn't feel it kind of dragged or anything like that. And as I said, I mean, really, I I could have put The Hunger Games in in this top ten quite easily. But I I wanted to kind of pick something which I think kind of left an indelible mark on me. And like so many of the films I've spoken about, this was certainly one that will stay with me. And I've gone back to it a couple of times. And, um, yeah, I I still really enjoy it. And I think it's quite an inspirational film for me personally. And I I would, uh, yeah certainly recommend trying to pick this up on Blu-ray. it didn't play anywhere in Manchester I had to kind of um, I heard about Insight in sight and sound actually and then kind of picked up the Blu-ray the day it came out and uh, yeah it, it really does the film justice it's absolutely stunning to watch and a really haunting kind of soundscape as well so if you fancy something a little bit different um, that will, you know, might be the worst two hours of your life but you're, you, or you might be like me and kind of thoroughly love it but post Tenebrae Luxe
1: Oh, we said we were gonna stop. They wanted to see the ruins. Yeah, but should we wake him up? No. You know what? Let's do on our way back to the airport we can catch him. Hmm? You know we won't. Yeah, probably not. No. And how did you two meet? We met about 18 years ago. We kinda sort of fell in love. And a decade later we ran into each other. No, no, no. You wrote a book and I read about it and went to look for it. Oh, it's yeah. pretty romantic. If we're meeting for the first time today on a train, would you start talking to me? Would you ask me to get off the train with you? Of course. Well, this place is so full of thousands of years of myth and tragedy, and I thought something tragic was
0: going to happen. still there. still there. Go. You never stop arguing girls, I like yeah, don't
1: argue girls, I make love to them yeah. with my
0: eyes. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: I'm stuck with an American teenager. I feel close to you. Yeah. But sometimes I don't know. I feel like you're breathing helium and I'm breathing oxygen. What makes you say that? I wanted you to say something romantic in your brain, okay? You are the mayor of Crazy Town. Do you know that? You are. This is how people start breaking up. Oh my God. I assure you, that guy you vaguely remember, the sweet romantic one that you met on the train, that is me. Why am I finding myself so attracted
0: to this woman?! Okay, so I'm not opposed to sequels, remakes or reboots, just so long as they aspire to be a little more than just a shameless cash-in, which obviously in today's day and age is quite a rare thing. But let's not forget that some of the best films ever made are remakes. Ben-Hur, for example, is a remake. The Ten Commandments, Sorcerer, all these films are based on existing materials. And it's often hard to forget, really, bearing in mind there are so many absolutely god-awful ones, that there are a few film franchises that are alive and well and that I very much enjoy. Of course, the aforementioned Hunger Games films. And in 2013, two of my all-time favourite characters returned to the screen in the form of Celine and Jesse in Richard Linklaker's before midnight and welcoming them back after a nine-year absence I was so looking forward to this film and I am so pleased that it more than lived up to my expectation because moving the action to Greece Jesse of course played by Ethan Hawke and Selene by the brilliant Julie Depley have twin girls and on the surface everything seems fine a few wayward comments and Jesse's guilt for not being there for his son back in America it soon becomes quite apparent the two star-crossed lovers have moved firmly into the real world and things are not perhaps as rosy as we might like to think now i would say quite early on i i I personally thought this is the best film in the series yet and there's been no clamoring for the sequel from fans and I, i i rather hope that they take the pragmatic view and just do these films as and when they please and on their own timetables because i think they're going to be better films um in my opinion, for that. I mean, the gestation period of this film, of course, was nine years, as I I mentioned. And in that time, kind of Link Laker, Depley and Hawke were kind of writing the screenplay and kind of coming back and forward with a few ideas. And it's an absolute triumph. Um, I would actually say, I think, on this time around, this is very much Depley's film. And her character seems to have the best lines. Um, And I think Celine. Is the most endearing. I think Jesse in the previous films has been kind of the wide-eyed optimist and as the series has gone, however, he he appears to be kind of more kind of trapped in this kind of boyish cycle of constantly expecting sex and wanting her to fit his life around him. And Armand White commented that the pair's dialogue is is a load of self-obsessed waffle for the most part, and two people who are so preoccupied with the t- kind of trivialities of their life that they offer nothing on a deeper level. And I, I think this is kind of the mistake perhaps on White and I know I do talk about Armand White a lot but I think this is kind of a mistake which a lot of people might make about this film because that is really I think the vast majority of what human relationships are about and we do continually pratter on about ourselves and our lives and I think you know unlike Armand White you know, everything that kind of comes out of life isn't of earth shattering importance and Before Mud Night is a film and a series about two people who like all of us meet by chance, and all meetings are chance, there is nothing special about theirs, um, you know, just because it happens on a train and it's in a film, you know, that's how human beings do, we do get on, but, you know, everything is kind of by chance it were, and they fall in love, but fell in love and then had a massive dose of reality, now I've grown up with these films since the age of 15 and we've all been idealistic um, and young before, and in recent years you know, gone through that kind of period of thinking, you know, is my life slowly ending and, you know, what the fuck am I going to do about it and Before Midnight works in part because Jesse and Selene walk around we see that their once great love has, has really been eroded and you know, he doesn't help at home and knife is shockingly pretentious and she spends most of her time complaining and Link a sticks to the formula that has worked so far before it's a film of conversational set pieces and it works best and for most part it's just Jesse and Celine talking about the mechanics of their lives together. Now, this hit several home runs for me. The fact that the conversations they were having were almost verbatim, ones that I had um, in part in 2013 with my ex partner. And you know, take out the Greece landscape, and there was nothing, you know, (laughs) we were doing it in the confines of a house, but you know, take out those kind of Greek landscapes and the situation, the, the, the dialogue it really resonated with me and you know the fact that the film is obviously set in greece and it does look incredible i think just really kind of added to this film's kind of charm and familiarity for me now this was definitely i think of all the films the easiest and yeah they do pick good locations become vienna paris greece you know it's you know it's the very best europe has to offer really but there's something about i think those mediterranean countries where everything almost seems to take place in its own time as Jesse and slim walk around the romance and the history, almost contradict the brutal honesty of what they are actually talking about. This should be the kind of place they should be falling in love, not falling out of love. And uh, I, w- I wanted this film to be perhaps a lot more romantic, to perhaps kind of you know, um, I get, I guess, go back to the kind of the, the themes of the first one and be this kind of fairy tale. And it wasn't. It was a complete kind of. Uh, the opposite of all that this is very much a massive dose of reality for both the characters and for those people watching it and as the kind of the the, the film ends and you see the kind of you know jesse kind of talking idyllously about his kind of make-believe time machine um it you you can kind of see it as being in two ways as that kind of camera pans out you know is this going to be the big you know a new beginning for them or is it just kind of another nail in the coffin he's just delaying the inevitable you don't know and that's the beauty of these films I think they do let you fill in the blanks that's what happens afterwards I hope we get another one Um, and what what I love about them and all three of them is the fact that these films never feel forced the drama is never kind of rammed down your throat and the action seems completely organic with Linklater just letting the scenes unfold in their own time and Before Midnight is arguably the most honest of these films so far Um, I think the, t- the previous two were for the rant and this one's definitely for the realists. And you can sympathize with both Jesse and Celine, there is a nagging sense that both want more, and one final fling of youthful enjoyment, and the reality is with kids and careers, these days are long gone. And as the camera kind of moves away and they're desperately trying to make sense of their lives, I hope this isn't the last that we see of them, because this is one franchise that I hope goes on and on. And you know, it would be so interesting if we were to kind of follow these films, you know, through to kind of Deppie and Link Lang, um, sorry, Deppie and Hawks, kind of, you know, 70s, 80s, and you go back as well, and this is the other thing, I watched the, the other two films leading up to this, and you look at how young they look in that first film, and then how old they look now, you know, gee, Deppie, you, know, you know, she's skinny as in this, and skinny as in the first one, and this, year, you know, she's put on a few pounds and that kind of thing, but that's what happens, you know, I yes I, I saw some pictures of myself the other day and i thought oh my god you know I'm, I'm 34 i've got gray hair i went mean, gray when i was like 24 but i looked at myself and i was like 20 and i was like oh my god what happened to that person and um i just think that these films should, will live long in i, I think film law and they deserve to be and and this was the one i was talking about you know the kind of um kind of the box office and this film didn't perform, perform that well here, and there was an, an expectation amongst kind of independent cinemas, all the kind of the smaller chains, that *Before Midnight* would be a kind of, um, I suppose, a kind of a bit of, a, you know, a, a box office smash for them. And unfortunately, well, fortunately in a way, but we had a great summer in twenty thirteen in Britain, and it was pretty beautiful. And films like *Before Midnight* suffered, and you know, it did hit a lot of kind of cinema chains quite hard. There was a brilliant article in *Sight and Sound* about it. That this was, you know, one of the tempo releases that people were kind of, kind of, hope getting that kind of, you know, that that crowd, and it it simply didn't materialize, and this film didn't do the, the numbers that a lot of people were expecting. It did, obviously, did alright. I mean, it made a fair amount um, of money, but uh, it wasn't the success people were hoping, and that's a dreadful shame. And really bizarrely, as well, this film's beautiful to watch. I absolutely, I was in awe of of just how stunning it looks and it's not getting a blu-ray release in britain it's only been released on dvd i find that absolutely inexplicable in a way surely it was time to go back and stick them all on blu-ray and you know put them out and it, it never happened you can't even buy like a box set of the three i i don't understand what the kind of mentality was behind that. and i'm perfectly happy to admit that i downloaded a um a, a blue i burnt my own blu-ray copy of it in the end because i wanted to see that kind of those beautiful greek sunsets and uh yeah i very strange decision and um One that, you we, know, I managed to circumnavigate. But, you know, who still buys DVDs? Come on, you know, let's, let's move with the times.
1: This is the Cloud Atlas Sextet. I doubt there's more than a handful of copies in all of North America. But I know it. That's it. The music from my dream. There are whole movements I wrote imagining us meeting again and again in different lives, in different ages. <laughs> I can't explain it. But I knew when I opened that door, a powerful deja vu ran through my bones. I heard it in a dream. I was in a nightmarish cafe. And the waitresses they all had the same face. No oh, reason to hide. I know you are Sonmi-451.
0: Yesterday, my
1: life was headed in one direction. Today, it is headed in another. You ever think the universe is against you? Fear. (laughs) Phenomena that determine the course of our lives. These forces begin long before we are born and continue after we perish. a better world and waiting for you there
0: okay so i can openly admit that my favorite film of the year might be something A little little bit contentious for many people, and I will preface by saying that I am fully open to the idea that people will hate this film, however they are completely wrong and I have no interest in hearing why they don't agree with mine. Indeed, this is a film that people don't seem to think is just okay, they either like it or think it's some kind of underrated masterpiece as I do, or they completely despise it. And it is of course Tom Tickler and the Wachowskis' Cloud Atlas. And just to clarify, Lana Wachowski is a she, not an it, not a what, not a uh, she is a she, so just get that off my chest. So why Cloud Atlas anyway? Well before I begin I must really talk about D.W. Griffith's intolerance, because I feel there is kind of similar territory between these films. Now bar none, this is one of the most incredible pieces of cinema ever made, it is truly jaw-dropping, staggering in fact in places. It's also one of the dullest, most unengaging, frankly sleep-inducing pieces of cinema I have ever seen. I don't care what people say, How beloved it is by some, Intolerance is a three-hour lecture has the rare effect of making a minute seem like an age. As a piece of narrow cinema, I hate it as a visual technical marvel, it is staggering. Now Cloud Atlas may not be as technically innovative as Intolerance, but it is, in my opinion, ridiculously as impressive, but my rather contentious view on Intolerance could easily be levelled against Cloud Atlas because I wouldn't say it's a resounding success. Some of Cloud Atlas is outright awful in fact, but for me it deserves huge amounts of praise for its sheer vision alone we shouldn't say i'm giving it an a for effort in some kind of patronizing pat on the back way quite the contrary in fact in one minute of cloud atlas contains exactly a thousand more interesting ideas than 99 of all the films released over the past five years now of course i'm making that statistic up but of course 95 percent of facts are now david mitchell's original novel was called unfilmable and i don't really like this term because Nothing is unfilmable. The key factor is, can it be made into a decent film? And I think studios agreed with this view in many respects, because Cloud Atlas was not produced by Hollywood or any other major studio. Every single dollar of its 100 million budget came from independent sources, making it the most expensive independent film ever produced. And it's, it's easy to see why. If you're a studio executive, you, would risk, you wouldn't want to risk your reputation backing a film. In order to work would require at least a three hour running time. from a cult classic novel that many people think is a new age piece of garbage and let's be honest it has a very niche appeal it is essentially everything that isn't multiplex friendly which is perhaps in a way explains why i like it so much cloud atlas has a ensemble cast and various narratives and genres spanning hundreds if not thousands of years all of these Various stories are linked by a variety of reoccurring themes through the ages. There is no doubt that Cloud Atlas does not necessarily tie these narratives together in a coherent fashion. Indeed, I think you could watch this film to the end of time and you would might struggle to make it all work. However, anything that gets the brain working like this, I think needs to be celebrated because Cloud Atlas, I think, is a film that's made by people who love film and who know cinema and it isn't some easily kind of digestible piece of fluff that you can consume and walk away from in a blink of an eye. I've seen it three times now, on each occasion, take away something new. As a viewing experience, it kind of reminds me of something like Baraka, and you very much take from it what you put in. You might think it has multiple meanings, you might think it has no meaning, and I think, though, with a little bit of investment, it does it reward you on an emotional and, to a degree, intellectual level as well. I read one review that stated the film was offering some kind of alternative religious experience, and this was profoundly anti-mankind. Now, I don't share that view in some regard. I, I certainly don't think it's an w- alternative religious experience, but I think I could see why people would think that. And really the central core theme of the film is mankind repeating the same mistakes over and over. And it despite kind of having, quite, I suppose, a, a kind of happy ending, I don't think it really kind of suggests that anything particularly has changed. And as a species, I think we do repeat the same errors over and over again. We we look at the past with horror, the likes of the Holocaust and you know the present, you know the First World War. But and then kind of the various horrors of the medieval conflicts. Yet in reality, those types of things still occur to this day. You know, g- genocide is alive and well. Oppression, and it's estimated that there are more people in forced labour, i.e., slavery, than at any time in history. We've learned nothing in terms of economics and since the last economic disaster haven't implemented any legislation to stop the same thing from happening again. Which is why when the film asks, you know, why we make the mistakes, same mistakes over and over, I think this is kind of quite a pertinent question. And, you know, let's look at some, you know, take one example. We at the present, 97% of scientists agree that the world is heating up through man-made fossil fuel use. Yet there is an idiot belief that the 3% who say it's not man-made are given a ridiculous, inordinate amount of press coverage and, frankly, have the money to back up their stupid hypothesis because most of these, kind of, that, that 3% are scientists that are paid for by religious organisations and large corporations and, you know, climate change isn't some kind of conspiratorial pie-in-the-sky nonsense, it's, it's a fact and it's slowly killing and destroying our planet. Yet. As a species we're not really doing much to sort it out and i, I dare say in a few hundred years the world you know, we'll look back at you know the, at now as being the, you know, the turning point and you know we didn't learn our lessons we haven't learned that we need to kind of take care of the earth and i i think that's the kind of the, the territory that cloud atlas g- goes into and it, it might not be comfortable for a lot of people and i've noticed that people with well a lot of reviewers i suppose and friends especially i guess who have kind of right-leaning politics, hate this film, and that didn't really surprise me in the least. And it's it, it kind of leads me to quite an interesting point about this film, because at least within my circle of friends, when we kind of discuss Cloud Atlas, it was always the themes of the film that were discussed first, and they kind of like gave way to kind of these impassioned critiques ranging from the film's pre-mentioned kind of quasi-religious undertones to its left-leaning political bias or its yawning anti-capitalist sentiments and its outright offensive posturing that as a species we may not be as perfect as we think and no one ever talks about the directing the acting or the music or any of the film's technical aspects and I think this is interesting because it suggests that Cloud Atlas is a film that people digest on a far deeper level than they're actually aware of, good or bad And, and the only other film I can think of really that provoked such furious debate amongst my friends was Constantine which forget the fact it has Keanu Reeves in it not that that's a bad thing I quite like Keanu Reeves but that's by the by but I thought it was one of the most th- provocative and thought-provoking films in recent memory I, I was kind of astounded by it and whenever I talk about it, people think I'm kind of taking the piss but it, it really kind of provoked some really kind of interesting kind of debates about kind of the, the idea of heaven and hell and you know of catholic doctrine and that kind of thing and you know go back to constantine i think it's a really sort of underrated film and cloud i think cloud atlas kind of plays in the same kind of ballpark in terms of how it gets people thinking and i guess watching it again you know the tonal shifts of it can be a little jarring from kind of slapstick to science fiction and to, to 70s thriller it's yeah, I saw the DNA of Blade Runner, All the President's Men, Snatch, Even, Master and Commander, to name but a few, and the more you watch it, I think the more subtle and clever the tonal shifts in the filmmaking language becomes. What I enjoyed about it most, and going back to uh, a screen of Lawrence of Arabia I saw last year, it amazed me how, when I watched that, how, how that film breathed, and Cloud Atlas does that, it doesn't seem to be, it has its moments, obviously, when the, kind of, the pace picks up, but it seems kind of... Unfold in its own time and let scenes breathe a little bit and let kind of the actors because obviously it's a massive task. You know, many of them, you know, they're playing like four, five, six different roles, and you could see. I, I, I got the impression from it anyway that they were having an absolute blast of and really enjoying the challenge. And it's, it's, I think it's perhaps a little bit too restrained at times, especially kind of the new soul sequences. That although are kind of visually incredible, black, perhaps the action and punch that you know people were hoping from the Murkowski's, but. I guess the kind of the... the I suppose my, my biggest kind of criticism for play, the the cast are great, but Halle Berry, um, I just don't think she should ever be in anything ever again. And firstly, on the basis that she she can't really act, and secondly, every time I look at her, I'm reminded of kind of X-Men The Last Stands in which her kind of agents insistent that she was given more lines. So basically, she says dumb, clanging things. And some of the lines that she says in this are just absolutely terrible. Her readings are... And it, I, I just wish we could kind of, um, yeah, get get her out. Really, I guess like, yeah. she does kind of hold the film up, and she, her character is so important that she can't really not. You know, and her character is so important to the film that she, she's one of the main ones. And yeah, I was uh, that, that was, I suppose, I guess, the biggest jarring moment for me was having her in it. But it was good to see kind of Tom Hanks as well having some really meaty scenes, I think, and I, I you know, I kind of enjoyed the fact that we got so many different types of Tom Hanks. Playing a real baddie as well at times. And yeah, you know, many people said that in the Road to Perdition*, this was kind of like a darker film for him. And um, here he was playing a genuinely genuine playing a few really genuinely evil mean people and it's quite good to see I think Tom Hanks next I you know, I'm you know, going back to Captain Phillips. Um He's, he's very dependable sometimes, and I think with that kind of dependable nature, sometimes I find his films a little bit boring. But Hugo Weaving, of course, is evil incarnated through, and he, 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 here he might as well be Agent Smith or but in name. And it's a shame because, although I enjoy evil um, Hugo Weaving, I, uh, I'd like to see him kind of crack a smile occasionally that doesn't... Well, crack a smile that isn't instantly followed by him trying to kill someone, but... For such a weighty film, I don't think *Cloud Atlas* takes itself too seriously either. The nursing home subplot, although it was fun, um, I guess it, it 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 has that kind of phantom menace type kind of jarring tonal shift to it. And I, I you know. I don't like comedy very much. I don't like comedy films very much. And when I was kind of watching uh, these these moments, I was thinking, yeah, this is kind of fun, but I could I could. It was certainly one part of the story that I could certainly do without. But overall, I think. Cloud Atlas is going to be a film that's going to take some time to resonate with audience and sometimes it's, you know, it's, a good to, it's a good thing when a film comes out and people don't sort of tend to kind of pick up on it right away because I guess it gives you that kind of smug kind of satisfaction that in a few years when people were saying this film's a masterpiece I can literally go back I can go back to it and say well I kind of saw that from day one and interestingly, enough, I saw Cloud Atlas around about the same time that I sat through the borefest that was Man of Steel. And when I was watching Man of Steel, I asked myself, you yeah, know, what is the, really the appeal of this film? You know, it's a glossy re-make of Superman One and Two, with a series of ear-splitting fights, clearly so fake to take away any kind of dramatic impetus from the film. And as the film as it crawled on, to it, it's entirely predictable ending. I thought back to Cloud Atlas, which I'd seen before, and. I'd left the cinema that day genuinely amazed by what I'd seen and at first I tried to kind of articulate my thoughts in the form of a show but I think I was unable to and I wrestled with the imperfections of it and the like, kind of the obvious areas for the kind of internet nitpicking you know like the, the makeup for example and things like that and I was almost embarrassed that I liked the film so much and, and the more I began to realize that Cloud Atlas really it's it's a rare film that isn't made for the kind of smartphone generation now I'm guilty of this myself I sit at home kind of tweeting sometimes I watch updating Facebook or make some remark or the other and when I saw Lawrence of Raven on the big screen for on four hours I simply sat there spellbind and here was a film made to be watched free of interruption to be digested slowly that virtually demands to be rewatched over and over to pick up the kind of the main subtle layers and, s- and nuances and Cloud Atlas is a film that's made in very much a similar way and I think that's kind of Man of Steel where it's you know, fight scenes and bang, bang, bang off all the time. And it just gets to the point where it's this visual audio assault that it's, 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 it's desperately trying to make you impressed where just simply by how it looks and sounds. And Cloud Atlas isn't like that at all. If you sit down and watch it with your mobile in one hand and listening out for the football scores in the other, it will just simply fly over your head. And... At three hours, it requires more than a little time investment, and I think really it demands your complete and utter undivided attention. And for those willing to make such a small sacrifice, I think it's a film that will reap huge rewards, perhaps not on first viewings, but on subsequent viewings after that. And I firmly believe that in years to come, Cloud Atlas will be regarded as something of a classic. It is, in my humble opinion, one of the most boldest, daring, and outright brave pieces of filmmaking in recent history, and it was my number one film of 2013 and it will be one of my favorite films of all time and i can honestly without any embarrassment say i think it is one of the finest films ever made and that is going to be it for this review of 2013 many thanks for listening i'm sorry it's been so long since i have um put out an episode but there was I've actually already recorded another one so that'll be out very soon as well so many thanks for listening you can find me on twitter at 24framescast the blog 24framescast.blogspot.com my other podcast the masters of cinema cast plenty of episodes coming on that front Joachim has been holding the fort bravely and has been recording with a number of guests so we'll be getting those episodes out as well so lots of content to come out many thanks for sticking with me and I'll be back soon bye